Our panel of break-fix petrolheads are back for another rousing what-should-I-buy debate. Using unique shopping criteria, they are challenged to find our first-time collector the best vehicle that will make their friends go, where do you get that? Or what the hell is wrong with you? At the next Cars and Coffee. For petrolheads of a certain age, the posters on our bedroom wall, the dream car, the exotic, the temptress, if you will, those are the cars that corrupted our souls and invited us into the enthusiast world for the first time. They are defined by painstakingly passionate craftsmen, vehicles with luscious curves, exaggerated features, spicy accents, and fiery red paint schemes from manufacturers with names that end in vowels. But thanks to misconceptions, myths, and limited availability, it's often not at the top of collectors' minds unless they're willing to take that risk or make that plunge into the worlds of Ferrari, Maserati, Lamborghini, and Alfa Romeo, to name a few. With the help of returning What Should I Buy panelists and Italian car owners and experts such as William Ross from the Ferrari Marketplace, Chris Wright from Collector Part Exchange, Don Weyberg from Garage Style Magazine, along with petrolhead extraordinaire Mark Shank, we aim to prove the naysayers wrong and find you, or me, the perfect Italian collector car. That's right. Welcome back to the show, gentlemen. It's always good to have you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, good to be back. It's always good to see me, I know. I look in the mirror every day and I think, man, if the good Lord had created anything finer, he'd have kept it for himself. Ciao, ragazzi. <laughs> Ciao, ragazzi. You doing that introduction was cracking me up. It's like when you watch the newscaster, it's like, hi, my name's Chris Bride, and I'm down in Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> Maserati. <laughs> Spaghetti. Maserati. <laughs> I mean, English is my second language. That's all I'm going to say. Clearly. It just killed me. It's like you're going along, and then it's like, Maserati. <laughs> Don't get me started. Bizarini, right? I have no bias. <laughs> I am not interested in, you know, those little Italian jobs. William, you'll be you'll be happy to know I have absolutely no ego at all, William. You'll be very happy to know I have no ego at all. None. Oh, I can see that. Yeah, you're very humble. Very humble. <laughs> My father was a dictator, you know. Which side did you take after the dick or the tater? <laughs> I'm the most humble. There is no one more humble than me. So, you know, I own an Alfa Romeo. Mm -hmm. My Alfa Romeo got stolen oh. about a month ago. I use it as a daily driver. And some people gave me grief about that. And I'm like, fuck you. It's my car. One. <laughs> Two, I'd rather every now and again have a little bad happen to it, but be able to enjoy every moment with this car, right? And let people enjoy it out on the road. Like it sparks conversations and all sorts of things everywhere I go. I was at the airport. I came back. It wasn't where I left it. So I called the police and they thought I was a little crazy. But it, here's one thing I learned at the airport. And it's probably true at most airports. They go around the entire parking garage and inventory every car where it's parked. Like they drive a camera car around and they know, like I give them my license plate and they go, yeah, your car is in a uh, 2F, the second slot in and it's like no i'm standing exactly right there and it's not but the fact that they even knew that was a little bit surprising my car got stolen and it got recovered about three days later a mechanic at a shop that i actually go to was driving home and he saw a car that looked out of place where it was and he took a picture and he posted it, this facebook group that chases 
stolen cars. It's called PDX, which is our airport code stolen cars. Guess what? My friend who had had her car stolen said, you should post up there. So she said, send me your information. And I'll do it for you. Because I was just kind of pissed off and not happy. And she did it. So she's the one who actually saved the car. I went and I recovered it. It was part, actually not in a terrible place, but behind an RV of some people who were, you know, partaking of, of the rock. The rock that is holy. Oh. <laughs> And, and what did they want with the 60s era Alfa Romeo? But... I don't think they're the ones who stole it. I think they're the ones who kind of got it when the people who actually stole it, who knew what they were doing. Because you're in an airport. That is a highly surveilled place, right? I mean, yeah. it, there's cameras everywhere. They're taking pictures of you every which way. Toll gates and all that kind of stuff to get out of there. So they went in, they had face masks on, and they did it in such a way, if you take a ticket and you leave within 10 minutes, because the parking lot's full, you don't have to pay, so there's no payment required. They went in after that inventory. The inventory ends by 2. My car was rolling out the gate by 2.30, so they had maximum time to kind of like before they brought it. But what I think they didn't realize is a 1974 Alfa Romeo Julia Super is not a valuable car. It's just... <laughs> It's not worth nothing, but it's also highly, highly conspicuous because within a day I had had an APB put out to the entire Alpha Club nationally. Every member got a note saying, be on the lookout for this car. If you see it in Craigslist or whatever, like hit us back. And that all brings me around to what were we smoking? Well, I now own a crack pipe. I I looked at my glove box the other day when I got my car back. And lo and behold, there's a nice green crack pipe in there. So there you go. They took the time to bash it in the glove box. It's great. Yeah. But but the best part about the crack pipe is the patina. (laughs) (laughs) The crustacean on it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, it's authentic. It it really came. It had some authentic use by a real passionate member of that community. They're stolen out for a mayo. All right. All right. The inside of my car, they had clearly smoked quite a bit in there. Yeah, so I haven't tried it yet. In fact, I haven't taken it out yet because I have to get some rubber gloves or something to be able to, like, I'm not touching that thing. And I had to. You haven't tried the crack pipe or tried driving your car? (laughs) (laughs) Not the crack pipe. I have driven my car, but whenever I lick my fingers, I get this weird tingly sensation. (laughs) So was there any damage to the Alpha? Did they try to hotwire it? Anything like that? that they did, yeah, was with the ignition. They put a screwdriver into the ignition. And my car, I'm the first owner in the U.S. It had gotten imported in from Italy directly. That part is why I haven't had my car until just a couple of days ago. Like I got it out to my mechanic and it's just taken a while for the part to come in. And actually the part didn't come in. But he kind of figured out a way to hack it by taking an, a U.S. barrel and flipping it upside down and kind of like hacking it in there. I can drive my car until the real part comes in. Now I need to go downstairs and get the crack pipe. I'll be- <laughs> yeah, I know how you Portland people are, Chris. So, you know, <laughs> they love the pipe. <laughs> out of context, that sounds extremely terrible, but <laughs> <laughs> sounds terrible with context. So that said, like every good What Should I Buy episode, we have some shopping criteria. So we have to kind of let our audience know what the purpose of this episode is. And as you guessed from the intro, we are focused solely on Italian cars. This episode is a long time coming. So we're going to be discussing collectors, sports cars, and exotics from the country of Italy. 
And we are also going to be focusing on all different ages of Italian cars. So we will span the gamut from pre-war to the modern cars, whatever suits our fancy. And we've kind of bucketed things, unlike other What Should I Buy episodes, into price criteria. So cars under 50 grand, between 50 and 150, and then those special vehicles basically going from $150,000 to infinity and beyond. I would like to add a criteria, just a special criteria if anybody wants to size requirement. So an Italian car, this is going to be a tough one. Red size doesn't matter. For a large individual. When you when you're my size, size does matter. So we're gonna start with that new Ferrari SUV and work backwards from there. Is that where we're going? Is it made for a small Italian named Antonio, or is it made for a large American? Is it for the American market? If you're a girthy boy, don't get the carbon fiber seats. They're never gonna work. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I am a girthy boy. So Chris, how tall are you again? I'm six foot tall. Oh darn! I thought you were five foot something because I was gonna say you're our staple. What? Resident Italian, right? Is that like a tender six foot tall? Yeah. Like six foot on tender. Six foot tall on a box. <laughs> I will say we did allow a special caveat for vehicles that were penned and produced by Italian coachworks like Ghia and Bertone and Pininfarina and others. So if you got some oddballs that are Italian adjacent, we're going to allow those into our suggestion pool. To get us going, why don't we start on the cheap end of things and talk about some Italian collector cars or sports cars under 50 grand? Who's got something they want us to chew on? I was going to say, I know, I don't see 10 grand or less on this list. (laughs) Is that even possible? Oh, yeah. Always remember, the cheapest exotic is going to be the most expensive. That's it. Bar none. Like with women. (laughs) Are we talking acquisition price? Are we talking acquisition price? Then what's going to take to get it to run? You know, that's really up to you, William. Exactly. Because <laughs> you can fall under that 50 easily, but then, you know, you'll be over 100 on some of these. On the ultra low end, there's a couple of things down there. Like, have you ever ridden in an X19? Yeah. Yeah. It's like a little go-kart. Why not? I think I've worn one as a shoe once. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you did the T-tops out, the passenger seat out, and then... Um, Removed, Yeah. <laughs> You know, you could probably even get like a Fiat Cinquecento, one of those itty bitty 50s cars, like for around 10 grand if you looked hard enough. Are they that low? Oh, yeah. You know what I love about those little cars? Those You say it better than me, Chris, the Cinquecentos, the 500s. Every time I've shot in one, I, I really, because of my size, six foot three, 330 pounds. Believe me, I sit in that seat very gently because the way it's put together. And I just sort of sit there and hope to God he doesn't hit a big bump. Because I'm going to break that seat. That's my big fear. And yet I drive a Fiat. I have a Fiat. It's a 124 Spider. It's a, well, it's actually one of the worst cars I've ever had. But it is a lot of fun. And it's like, it's you know, it, it's wonderful. That's not a safety concern off the seat were to crumple in an accident or anything. <laughs> I mean, is there a single crumple zone on a Fiat 500? I, I think if I were in an accident, they would just bury the whole car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it just becomes your coffin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So what else is in that then sub $10,000 range? Is there really anything out there outside of Fiat's? I thought the price on the 500s had climbed well above 10K by now. When I first moved to San Diego in like 08, 09, I was shocked by what 
I would see on Craigslist for old alpha GTVs and stuff under 10K, but like that market's dead and gone. What about our alpha Romeo Spider? Like a later one from like- the Yeah, I was gonna say, if you're, if you're willing to put the work in it, it'll be needing a lot. I think maybe more constructive would be under 20K. I think you could find some really cool stuff under 20K. That's a good and, one. and we create these big buckets. There's a huge difference between 20K and 50K. Yeah. You know, that's, that's a new it's a new car in between those two. If you're in that 15, 20 range, a lot of the major stuff's going to be done. So it's probably just little things that's going to have to be done to it to really make it acceptable to drive. You know, you're not going to be talking major body work, engine out or anything like that work-wise. So if you get up there, you can have a, probably have a car that you could drive as soon as you got it. You just have to do basic stuff to it. Oh, so you've clarified Chris's $10,000 car because he said I could buy an Italian car for 10 grand. I mean, I don't know what I was getting. Fred Flintstone mobile because the floorboards are rotted out. You get an Italian <laughs> paperweight for 10 grand. <laughs> Down on the lawn to piss off the neighbors, you know. Yeah, again, it goes back to saying the comments okay, you're gonna buy it. Is it the cost of just when you buy it, not including working on it? You include everything. I guess it's all how you perceive it. I agree with you know, under 20 grand, you can find some decent stuff out there that you could drive as soon as you get it. It's gonna have some nice patina to it, but it's gonna have character to it, but you're gonna be able to drive it and not have to worry about it. You could leave it at the airport and let someone borrow it for a few days and smoke some crack in it and not worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> that story is never going to get you're over. Gonna, you're going to get a sweet pipe at the end of it. Exactly. You get a parting gift. <laughs> it was like in the bottom of the, of the Cracker Jack box. It's like, ooh, I got a <laughs> I like your recommendation because the X19 was definitely on my list. I love those cars. A lot of people are like, it's the slowest car on the planet. If you're hoping to do burnouts at a traffic light, it might take 20 or 30 minutes to get that done. <laughs> I mean, it's not a fast car, but they are definitely fun cars. And it's the Italian MR2, or I'm sorry, 914, or all of those things, right? All of those, yeah. Or the Fiero. You have just blasphemed. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. I thought that's what you wanted me here for. Mark hit on a good point. Cars under 20, 25 grand is probably more reasonable because you are, and to William's point, you're going to find things that are fixed up at that point that are going to be runners, are going to be drivers. You're going to have a lot of fun with them. In that category for a while, because we were seeing these show up at the track, it might have been one individual or more, but the Maserati Coupe, the two-door, not to be confused with the Quattroporte, which is the four-door, was always right around 25 grand. And it was like the baby Ferrari, front engine, rear drive, paddle shifters. But for 25K, it was a great car. That has the uh, Ferrari V8 in it. Correct. Yeah. It does have the Ferrari V8. I had a friend with a Grand Sport and God, that thing was expensive to own. It's got a single clutch automated manual that really dies quick. The Grand Sport was just the continuation of that coupe a couple of years later. I think the Grand Sport looks better. I mean, you could find them real cheap and I don't doubt that you can find one 25K, but if I were buying that car, I would be prepared to set aside a significant amount of money, a significant maintenance budget. Right there, you're getting right back into the whole conversation of the cheapest exotic is going to be your most expensive one down the line. That's just kind of the way it works out. Well, I mean, it depends what you're doing. Like if it's a 1500 mile a year car, you're just taking out on Sundays to have fun with. That's a different story. Like if you're trying to really drive it, my friend used it as a daily driver. It's horrible. And that was when it was relatively new. It was only a few years old at that point. We got into this kind of debate when we did the collector car, muscle car, classic car. In that episode, we kind of debated what those terms mean. Are we saying that all Italian cars are exotics? No, no, no. Because this episode, I think, is is about Italian cars in general. So you can say some cars that aren't necessarily exotics. They're just, they just happen to be Italian. 
they're all imports. We can say that. We did also say classics. Yes. So that's like a Fiat 124, in my opinion, that's a sports car. That's a roadster, right? It competes right alongside of Triumphs and MGs and all those kinds of cars. That's what it was designed to do. And classic cars would be like Chris's Super Julia, where it's not necessarily like a, you know, Zagato or a 250 short body or something like that, but it's still, it's a classic. It's from that 50s, 60s, 70s era of Italian cars that needed to be brought over to the States or probably a handful that were brought here. So I think we can kind of split hairs on that. But to me, exotic means supercars. We're talking Lamborghini, Countach, Testarossa, F40, stuff like that. That's an exotic. Right. But for this episode, just Italian cars in general. Any yes. Italian cars. All like if someone wanted map. to bring over a, a Fiat Panda, that's fair game. That's a classic. And yes, and you can get that for less than 10 grand. So points to you. Right. Yeah. I was just thinking the same thing when he said Panda. Chris is like throwing up in the back <laughs> of his throat. I couldn't disagree more. <laughs> oh, but please dude, tell me what. I think Chris wants to come back when we get to the more expensive stuff. I think that's Whoa. Chris's forte. No, no, no. I think I disagree, but you know, I, we don't want to talk about just ordinary cars. That's I mean, very true. Pizazz. I came here with some weird stuff. I'd expect nothing less from Don. <laughs> Does it go in a pipe? You have your camera on, right, Don? Yeah, yeah exactly. I, I come from, you know, weird stuff. So I, I'm just going to barf it out there. And you guys do what you want with it. And that is done. It's just on the table. But I, I'll tell you, I, I came here with a couple of weird oddballs that were uh, penned or built or partially built or whatever you want to say in Italy. One of them, because Eric put it on an email, was the Volvo, not the P1800. That's a car that it's a great car, whatever you want to say about it. I was always a fan of the 780 Coupe. Came out in about 1986 in Europe. It hit the United States, I believe, in 87, and it lasted with us until about 91. What was interesting to me about that car, if I'm not mistaken, that car was not only designed, but it was also built by Pininfarina. And even though the car's body panels look exactly like what you find on a 740 or a 760, nothing, nothing lines up with those sedans. Nothing. They're completely independent. It's just in the chassis, the motor, all that stuff is standard Volvo. I always thought those were an amazing car, but I like Volvos and a lot of people don't because they're just too boxy. So if y'all want to chew on that, that's great. Or do you want me to bring in the other weirdos? That's a good weirdo because you're right. But there was also a Bertone Volvo later too, wasn't there? Where they went back to the Italians and asked them to design another Volvo. Before the 780 in the late 70s, early 80s, they had the 262, I want to say was the number. And it had a vinyl top. And it looked like it was a chop top. It was squashed down, typical Volvo brickish shape, but it looked like the 240 sedan that had been heavily, heavily customized. That was actually, I don't want to say the first, but in terms of this modern coupe look, that was the first one that Volvo worked with Bertone on. Then they came out with the 780 later on in the 80s, which was, a, in my opinion, a sharper car. But the 262 was also, yeah, designed by, in both cases, try to find one. Yeah. Try to find one. They are rarer than hen's teeth, especially if you say to yourself, well, you know, I want one, but you know, I, I got a budget of 15,000. Holy cow. That is a lot of Volvo Coupe because nobody wants them. They're just not that much money. They don't, they're not quick. They're not fast. They're really for an oddball person who just likes weird styling. They like weird stuff. They like stuff that you don't see every single day. You know, when you go to an Italian car show, if you pull up in a Volvo and they let you in, you can be pretty safe. You're going to be the only one there just because there just weren't that many built 
there aren't that many left around. And fortunately or unfortunately, those Volvos were treated like most Volvo customers treat a Volvo, which is I drive it every single day. It's my only car. It's going to get to 300,000 miles. By the time it gets there, if they've taken care of it, yes, being a Volvo, it'll still stand the test of time, but it's still going to be pretty tired at that point. So you're going to start sinking money into it. And believe me, you haven't lived until you've sunk money into an old Volvo. They suck money better than an old Maserati. Trust me. That they do. I can come better suck analogies than that, but we'll take a pass on that. You know, to me, I think we started at the lower end of the scale. I, I think that's interesting, but in Italy, they have, you know, and I already mentioned the Cinquecentos and things like that. And I really like the suggestion that came up earlier because I was driving a 1989 Alfa Romeo Spider the other day, and that is a cool engine. It's an inline four, double overhead cam, chain driven cams. And they use that engine for 60 years. I mean, that same inline four starts in the 750s in the 1950s and finally sunsetted, I think, in the 90s at some point. It really went for many, many, many years. It's a fun car. It's not very expensive to own. If you're in the affordable end of things, I think Alpha is probably the the standard because they're pretty easy to fix. You can literally disassemble the engine with a set of Allen keys and a set of metric wrenches and you're good to go. And the parts are accessible. The parts are plentiful and they aren't expensive. My car that we were talking about is a really cool car. It's a Julia Super. For those who aren't so familiar with it, they were all on the same platform. And there's the two-door coupe, which is the GTV there's the Spider, which is the two-door open top. And then there's the four-door Berlina, which is the Julia Super, which I own. But I've also owned GTVs. And like anything in, in that category from the 70s has character for days and is maybe at the high end, you're getting up into the 40s, but are very accessible in the 20 to 35 range. Like a really good GTV will be up in the mid 40s, but a driver GTV, you can get in the low 30s right now. It's a beautiful Bertone body. It's one of my all-time favorite bodies of any car, period. And it comes along with the notion of, do you want a car with a ton of horsepower that you can't use, or do you want an underpowered car that you can throw around on some roads and have a good time and not get in trouble with? These fall into that category. It's like I was on a car tour last week driving my Super, and I was working hard to, to keep up with everybody because they had more powered cars, but I was having more fun, I can promise you, and not getting in any trouble. Don brought up a good point. So first of all, I know Chris and I are a little inimical, but I agree with everything he just said. Just a, just a little? I'm just going to throw that out. I agree with everything Chris just said. Hug. Aww. Going back to Don's comment real quick. I was going in the other direction with this. Are we trotting out anything Penafrina or, or Bertone ever designed as a potential Italian exotic? Are we are we shopping Cadillac Galantes and shit? Ooh, I mean, like, that, what... that's an interesting call. But I think what we're we're trying to do is scratch an itch, right? We've got our first time collector, like always, for these "What Should I Buy" episodes. Sure. Who goes? You know what? I don't want a Mercedes. I don't want a Porsche. I don't want a, a hot rod. I want to buy an Italian car. What should I buy? We need to hone in on on what that is. I think there's some quintessential like starter Italian cars. Like we could just throw out 
Ferrari 308. Okay, great. The 944 of, of Italy, right? And Alfa Romeo's, to Chris's point, it's like the BMW of Italy, right? You're like, if you want a three series, buy an Alfa Romeo GTV, you know? So there's sort of these equivalencies when we boil it back, but people don't realize that about those cars. It's where you start to get off the deep end to Don's point. There's these coach builders that were making cars for other people under different brands, whether they're Bertone or Pininfarina or whatever. But then you kind of go the other way too. And it's like, have you thought about an Alfa Milano or a 164 sedan or a Lancia Delta? Some were available in the States. Some are now available gray market because of the statute of limitations being lifted. And then obviously we want to talk about the high-end collector, right? The guy that's already got 50 cars and goes, I need to add one more and it's got to be an Italian. And obviously we're going to defer to William and his expertise on that as we get to that part of the conversation. So I think we need to hone in on where do we live and then where do we adventure to? If we're going to be talking for that individual that's looking to buy their first one or buy their 50th one, it's that question you always ask that person when they're looking about, well, what are you going to do with the car? All of us can sit here and talk cars for days and everything, obscure ones, this and that, and the little minute things about it, what's fun about it. What it boils down to is someone's going to buy the car. It's like, hey, what is your intent and goal for this car? And what do you want to achieve with it? Are you going to want to do it to go to car shows? Are you going to want to, you know, are you going to go cross country? I mean, what are you going to do with the car? Because I think that can dictate to a lot too with what you're going to buy. The X19, you're going to buy that thing. You're not going to be taking a lot of luggage in that thing going very far in it. No, you're going to be jotting around the weekend here going to a car show that's maybe only 30 miles away. Or you're going to want something that's four doors, got a trunk, and you're going to be able to go drive somewhere. You can drive 8, 10, 12 hours in it, go somewhere with the family, your kids, or whatnot. So, I mean, I think that's the question they ask, too, is what is your intent with the car? Yeah, that's a good point. So let's start with the cruiser slash cars and coffee guy. What does he or she buy, rather? Is the person flashy or they want to be understated? I think the cars and coffee guy wants to be rare. The cars and coffee guy would like to be the only one in the parking lot. Right. I agree. So that's where you start looking at Lancia because you don't see those at cars and coffee too often. The quantities are so low. Some of the older Maseratis where the quantities are so low, they sold in the hundreds. I think that stuff is really interesting for that person. But which, right? Because the Lancias, you could be all over the map on those. The Maserati, are we talking about the Coupe? Are we talking about a Maroc SS? Are we talking about, you know, one of the Ghiblis or whatever? I mean, it, we're all over the map with these cars. And I think that's the problem with the Italian cars. They're so frenetic. There's not that consistency that you find in the German cars where there's just these evolutions, these legacies. And it's just like the Italians just like, today I felt like designing the Alpha 33. Boom, here you go. And then they move on to whatever their next thing is. If you've ever spent any time with the Italian army, you know that's how they do it. Never spent time with the Italian army. <laughs> you should. It, it's fun. It'll wake you up. It's wonderful. And that is how they build cars. Just like he said, this morning I woke up, I felt like building this, and there it is. And we built three and we moved on. Yeah, we move on. We go now. One of my favorite old Top Gear episodes, 2005, I thought of it immediately when you sent out the topic for this call was they did Italian mid-engine supercars for under 10,000 pounds. A great old episode. I remember that. What did they land on? They got a Lamborghini Uraco, which mm -hmm. is now $50,000 at least. A Maserati Merrick, I thought of because you just said it. And Ferrari 308 GDV4, of course. Same episode, they reviewed the Zonda F. You know, it was mm -hmm. a great episode if anybody wants to go back. To I remember that episode. It was a good episode. The Merrick to me is like a baby Bora. Although the Bora is, for what it is, relatively affordable. Yes, it's 150 grand. I'm not saying 150 grand is affordable. For what it is, they made what? 
like less than 600 of those cars. Yeah. How many Italian cars they made less than 600 of can you buy for, you know, 150 grand? Not too many, that's for sure. So that's actually a pretty good deal. But if we take the other side of that, what about a De Tomaso Pantera? American muscle under the skin of an Italian car. Are we still in the sub 50K range? Because that's... I think the Merrick the Merrick pushes 50K. You could do that. Merrick's on the cusp, but the Pantera, we got to save for the yeah. middle ground. Because that's... Okay. A- 150. The Pantera grew up. That's yeah, fair. That's, I remember the Pantera. You could buy them all day long for ten to fifteen thousand in really nice shape. And then it was like one day overnight, bam, sixty grand. I said, "Whoa, whoa, where'd that come?" And then it, it, they keep on going. It's insane. They turned up in a Fast and Furious not too long ago, too. Um, I can't remember the ruiner of car values. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I thought that was bring a trailer. I, I want to throw this out there just because here I go again. You know, Mister Malay is here and and all the oddballs, but we've kind of bumped on the Elante a little bit. And I, I got to tell you, yes, I love Elante. You know, the, the, hello, my name is Don. <laughs> I said that sarcastically. I know. Like I said before, I got to vomit these out and then just see what y'all do with them. Next, he's going to say the Chrysler TC by Maserati. Yeah, yes! <laughs> yes! <laughs> yes! Didn't Lee, I Baron that was designed in, over in Italy. Oh, so terrible. I want that car. Great. They were so awful. You had to love them. We scared William off. William just straight up ran away. I think Don is lost. I, I, we got to bring you. <laughs> Don stole your pipe. Yeah, I know. Stop pumping my track pipe. What I wanted to get at, I remember when those cars were new. The Elante and the TC, which, by the way, stood for too costly, if you remember how expensive those things really were. You know, I grew up around car guys, all my dad's friends, they were all car guys. And some of them liked them, some of them didn't like them. But I remember one word specifically that always floated around both of them, which was poser. Poser. (laughs) Because you have this Elante, which was confused. Was it an SL competitor or was it its own bag of lasagna that's trying to compete with what? What from Italy is similar to... The Elante. There's nothing. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Dr. Iacocca says, hold my Chianti. Yeah, he sends this LeBaron over to Maserati and says, fix it up. So they did. And they sent it back. Some of them had Maserati heads and a five-speed manual transmission. And believe it or not, those little bastards would cook. They could really, really go. You had to rev the hell out of them, but they would really get going. My favorite, shoot me now, it was the Mitsubishi V6. That was the best of all of them, in my opinion. If you're looking for a cruiser, it was strong. It was healthy. The only problem with it was it was nose heavy. That car, you put it into a curve, it didn't want to do anything. But wait a minute. We're talking Alante. We're talking TC. They're not sports cars. They didn't want to be sports cars. They wanted to be kind of like poor man SLs, but they were so confused. But there's really nothing from Italy that came from them. Okay, yes, you know my problem. I like those cars. My question is, you show up to a Cars and Coffee. Are you still branded as, oh, my God, I can't believe he had the guts to bring that thing here. What a poser. Is he still a poser today? You're weird, but you're not a poser. I'm the only one wearing a Maserati headband, so. I'll go with eccentric. You're eccentric. Sex offender watch list. But other than that, you know, you're you're well accepted. (laughs) I just love the fact that Don's pick for an Italian car is an American car with a Japanese motor. We're all bases. He's picked, <laughs> let's look at Don's lip. Got a Volvo. Flag on the play. <laughs> let's bring this back a little bit because we've skirted around some cars, and even my list is all over the map. Because as I was trying to remember 
cars that were sold in the United States that were purely Italian, the list is pretty short. It's actually longer now than it's ever been. If you look at all the offerings between Ferrari, Lamborghini, Alfa Romeo, and so on. Back in the day, I've mentioned this before, the Fiat 850 rear engine kind of Beetle-like Hillman Imp looking thing came in a bunch of different body styles. I think those are fantastic little cars. Yeah. And if I can, when you go 850, you've also got the Moretti. You've got a few little coach builders out there who played with the 850 and created their own little demon. And they were fantastically styled cars, especially that Moretti Coupe. That thing was beautiful. And it was so tiny. And yet, six foot three, 330 pounds, I fit in those cars very, very well. Those are incredible. I do throw the alignment out, but I fit in the car. And the passenger. The passenger also gets thrown out. (laughs) Negative camber. It's all good. It's crazy. You have to counter. Oh, I lost my I lost my badge. Hold on. Okay, there it is. I just taped them on because I wanted to reflect Italian quality as well. You know, so I use tape, and I put it right there. And I have my Ferrari badge over here and my Maserati hat. I'm good to go. So, did your shirt come with holes in it from the factory? Is that what you're saying? Yes, it is factory air conditioning. <laughs> Panels of the shirt misaligned. So it's like one, one sleeve longer than, than the other. That is a true Italian shirt. Very exotic. There are definitely some de facto Italian cars. We've seen more Delta HFs on the shore now. They're like these gimme cars, like the 308 and some others. You know, that's fine. There's some other ones that I think we forgot came to the shores. I've mentioned one of them before was the Lancia Beta Monte Carlo, right? With the Panda front end, kind of looks like a DeLorean. It's a mid-engine two-door sport coupe. But you could take that a step further and they sold less of them. But then you had the Scorpion and the Scorpion was the baby 037. So if you're into that like group A, group B rally and you're not interested in a hatchback, you know, penned by Jujaro, like the Delta... You could look down those other avenues of Lancia and people forgot that those cars were actually sold here. Another one I mentioned before is the Fiat 131. You could very easily do some bolt-ons and create your own Abarth. You're not going to have the jackknife flares that the Abarth came with, but you could build a little hot rod out of a plain Jane 131. Mm -hmm. Those Scorpions are great. I just got a ride in one the other day and man. Very cool styling, you know, it's kind of got that group C, group B kind of look, and it's it's like a hot hatch type of styling. And if I remember, they had a detuned Dino engine in those, just like in the Stratos. Yeah, yeah. It's a very cool car and very affordable. It's easily in this price range of the sub-50s. You know, another launch that I think gets very overlooked for people in the know would love it, the Fulvia. Yeah. Everybody knows the Fulvia from the 60s and 70s rally car. Front engine, front wheel drive. They look funny when you open up the hood. If you've ever gotten in one, the the engine is rotated off axis and then flipped over by like about 30 degrees. It's laid over. Yeah, it's laid over just to get the weight down a little bit. Very cool. You can get those for 30 or less if you look around. You're rolling in a Cars and Coffee. You'll be the only person in a Lancia Fulvia for sure. What about... One of our ugly cars from the uncool wall, the Alfa Romeo SZ. What are you talking about? I love that car. It's like the Italian Corrado. Why, what's not to like about it? It's amazing. Why, why would you even call it ugly? You're the worst. <laughs> I know. I think it's cool. A lot of people think it's heinous, especially that back end. 
because it's completely slab-sided. Oh, oh, Don's got something to say about that back end. No, no, I, I agree. I think it's kind of an ugly car, but I think that's the charm of it. It's come full circle. It was ugly. It was cool for like six months when it was released. Very quickly became ugly. It has been a very interesting, good-looking car, I, I think, for the last 10 years or so. See, and for me, I think it's ugly. I do. I think it's a hideous car. But that doesn't mean I wouldn't buy it. I mean, I appreciate a car that goes out on its own and says, hey, look at me. I'm ugly. I don't care. I love that attitude. I love it. It's kind of like an American car that was built in Italy with a Japanese engine. There's oh, something Jesus. about that that just says, whoa. <laughs> you know, to me, it just reminds me of like a Milan fashion house or something. It's like it was ambitious. It was over the top. It was haute couture kind of, exactly. kind of car. In very small quantities, and it's very cool, you know. It's but it's a performer, too. It's got a great engine, good balance. Everybody that ever drives one and reviews it says, you don't see it from the inside, but it is a driver's car. Right. So you get that shape in the 80s from the GTV6 yes. as well. Obviously in more volume than the SC. The 6 is a great one. You, you and it, it's Yeah, is it? You know, these were the kind of cars that, like, I did not like them when I was a kid. In the 90s, looking at them, I was like, oh, God, that's so 80s and horrible. And now I look at them and I'm like, ah, it actually looks pretty damn cool. The only thing that's really slab sided about the SC is the back. Okay, the back is just a big flat. You know what's funny? I'm with you, Mark, but on the opposite end of that spectrum, that when I saw that car, it went immediately on my wall alongside the Viper and a bunch of other cars. And I'm like, the SZ is amazing. But then a year later, when they introduced the RZ, the cabriolet or the spider, whatever you want to call it. Oh my God, that car is heinous. Take the roof off of that thing. And suddenly I'm like, no, thank you. Not enough. <laughs> but an underappreciated car. If you're looking for something that really nobody wants. It's like an uglier Alante in convertible form. We're going to keep going back to that. <laughs> <laughs> Never letting the Alante go. Today's episode is brought to you by Cadillac. <laughs> the only way to travel is Cadillac style. <laughs> so wow. William what about it from your experience what's a bargain basement Ferrari that isn't a 308 or a 348 what's some of these more obscure ones that people aren't thinking about well the Fiodino that's a good looking car you got the Ferrari engine in it it's just got the Fiat badge on it but it's Fiodino that's a great car they're going up in value that's for sure again you're not gonna be killing anybody zero to 60 times that but it's a lot of fun it's a great engine it's a beautiful looking car that would be my thought. I'm going to say, I, I've always been a Fiat guy. Ever since I got my 124, I've loved Fiat even before I got my 124. I always wanted the Dino Coupe. I always thought that was a better looking car than the convertible, which most people disagree with me on, which is fine. I, I'm the guy who brought the Elante to town. So, you know, what do you want? <laughs> anyway, where, where I was going to go with this, though, was the Dinos are kind of going up pretty nicely. One car I've always wanted, and here I go again with the Volvo styling, the Fiat 130. Do you remember those? It's kind of... Yeah, it, it, it looks a little bit, honestly, like the Volvo 780. Pinaferina design, V6 engine, but they were Fiat's entree to, we can produce something like Alfa Romeo, but we can still do it on a budget. They were nice. And there's two versions of that. There's the round yes. headlight early car and the rectangle headlight late car. Yeah. So if you're right. into that square body round headlight thing, you could go either way with this thing. They're pretty cool. 
Yeah, they are. And not a lot of people know about them. They were never imported to the USA. So any 130 that you see here were brought over by a private person. But I, I think like you were saying, now that the statute of limitations is lifted, I don't think that car would have too many problems being registered in almost any state. I, I really like those cars. And I, and I think trying to go back to the focus, which is what should I buy for my first collector car, as much as I might like the Elante and the TC to look really weird, I don't want somebody to pull into a Cars and Coffee and think, oh God, what a poser. I'd like them to pull into a Cars and Coffee and have guys around think, whoa, wait, 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 where'd you get that? Yeah. And that's where that alpha comes in. And that's where kind of the fiat comes in. And, you know, these are little oddballs that people don't see every day. These are cars that you, you pull into Cars and Coffee. And a lot of people will wonder, what is that? Oh my God, that's a fiat? The Dino people are pretty familiar with, but I think those 130s, I'm not going to say they're cheap. They're certainly not commanding Dino money you know, yet. Um, yeah. They are going up. And I think that has to do with the Dino. People who know the 130, it's not a Dino. It's not a sports car at all. It's a big grand touring car. And I think that's where Eric and I kind of have a lot of fun bouncing off of each other because he seems to be much more the sports car, get out there and run through the cones and terrify your dog. Dog do. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I want to go on a nice leisurely cruise to a restaurant at the beach. And that's where we kind of have fun. You know, I, I look at these little Lancias that you and Chris are talking about. I'm like, oh my God, that car just looks like a headache to me. Good. I got another one for you, Don. How about the 128.3P? That's basically Fiat's answer to the Mark I Scirocco. Yes. Yes. They were a great car. Don't get me wrong. All of them that we've talked about, I think, are terrific cars. <laughs> I know, Mark, you're going to keep bringing up the Elante. My mom had one of those. Oh, God. I got to meet your mom. <laughs> you might tell you the coolest thing about my mom going car shopping with my mom is amazing she walks in and people are like excuse me ma'am you're looking for a car yes well what are you shopping for uh i need a car with a manual transmission uh, what uh, you need a car with a manual transmission yes i never learned how to drive an automatic do you have anything with a manual if the answer is ah. no she turns around and walks out the door that is it <laughs> that's awesome learn how to drive that's an automatic. Awesome. <laughs> That said, going back to William for a second, what was the Ferrari from Rain Man? Was that a 412 or something 400. like that? The 400. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 400, 400, 412. And, and you know what? I'm a big fan. I love those. I think that's a great car. And a lot of people don't like it because of the design, but I'm actually a huge fan of that car. I think it's fantastic. The, the design of that was way ahead of its time when it came out, right? Because they made mm -hmm. that car forever. What, 72 to 89? So someone please correct me. Or what? Yeah, 76. But you imagine got to seeing that car in the mid-70s. That was 10, 15 years ahead of its time from a design language perspective. Mm -hmm. It also made a big movie reappearance in the Nicolas Cage unbearable weight of massive talent. Yeah. He was driving a 400i. But the 412, you get them with a the manual. Oh, geez. I don't know if it fits under our 50K. I was pulling the sales on Bring a Trailer, looking at their charts. Unfortunately, the Bring a Trailer lumps them all together, you know, from all of the years. So you kind of have to dig in and, and look at them. It, certainly in that sub 100K, 50 to 100K type range, a lot of really interesting options. I've got 41K for uh, 400 GT in uh, sports car. The, the, the big difference is the 412 was a fair jump. And then there's whether or not you got the five speed or the three yeah. speed on. Yeah, that's up to 80K now when you get up. Yeah, if you get the manual, it's going to have a nice, it's going to have a 20 to 30% markup on it with mm -hmm. the five speed in it. You know, the automatic's not that big because it kind of goes back. You're not going to throw that thing around some autocross event. 
that's a nice touring car to go for a nice long distance drive. Pop that thing in a drive and just go and cruise at 80, 90 miles an hour. And, and right. nice luxury comfort. Right. Well, it's not that I want to go there too far because you start stepping in a Ferrari's backyard and it gets real expensive real quick. But Ferrari was always brilliant at building four-place coupes with a V12 front engine, rear drive. My God, those cars taught other people how to build a coupe. I mean, they, they were fantastic. They would move like bats out of hell. But like you said, William, you're not going to throw it around too many curves and corners because that's not what it was built for. It was built to take you on a nice long journey. It was built to take you overland at over 100 miles per hour, and you didn't know you were doing it. God, they were dream cars. They really, really were. To me, and maybe I'm wrong, but I mean, I look at the 550, the 575, not that we can bring that into the our conversation because they're still really expensive. What fantastic cars. And I'll tell you the one I would, the one I've been looking at most recently, not that I'm going to pull the trigger on it, is the uh, 456, the 456, yeah. which... And I'll be honest, you know, when they were new, I was a 550, 575 guy. By God, that was the end-all, be-all Ferrari. That was that this 456 can go straight to hell. I started kind of growing up a little bit, and I realized, God, you know, that 456 has a real nice look to it. It was almost like the 550, 575 was that really hot girl in school. You just loved this girl. She was smoking hot. But you realize she's a little bit of a pain. All the guys want her. But, you know, she's got a sister. <laughs> All right. We, well, let's stay away from the teenage girl metaphors. Who said teen? Who said? I don't know. I didn't say teen. You said school. I'm assuming you didn't mean graduate school. You went to the teen comment. But the, the point is, though, the 456 is that quieter, classier sister who... You're just leaning into this, aren't you? Gets overlooked. Just gets overlooked. But oh, I agree. Yeah, once you meet her, once you, you know, once you, <laughs> this is where it gets weird. I know. <laughs> Never a dull moment with Don. Move on from the metaphor and talk about the car. <laughs> so anyway, the Elante. <laughs> Can we put it time out? And I think you. Uh, I think everybody knows you've got to buy an Elante. You're going to have a Cadillac. It's the kind of car you need right there. Everyday usage is quiet. It's conservative. And that's why I like the 456. It's quiet, it's conservative. And for me, I got to get it in. I can never pronounce it, but it's basically champagne gold. But I don't know. I see those cars as a bargain right now. My oh, they God, are. God, it's a V12. It's front engine. It's fuel injected. It's four place. It's everything the 400-412i was. And yet, because it was ugly, you know, the 412 just kind of lingered in the value. Now they're starting to go up, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right, yeah. William? They are. So, you know, the guys like me, they're becoming unobtainium. And yes, the 456 is still unobtainium. But I look at that and I think, you know what? And correct me if I'm wrong. I think that would be a better car just simply because it's more modern. Just the technology, oh. the engineering is there. A 456 sold on Bring a Trailer just this week for 60K. That's not bad. Was it an automatic or the six speed? And it has 25,000 miles. Get them under 50. If you got the service history, I mean, of course, it's going to go with private, you know, any car you want to get service wise. But even with that four or five, six, if it's got 40, 50, even 60,000 miles on it, but it's got the service, everything done to it, that's not a problem. Right. I, again, because it's not a car that you're going to be kind of revving the piss out of it and, you know, slamming through gears or anything yeah. like that. And, you know, you don't yeah. have to worry about the automated transmission that it, it's a great yeah. car to go for a nice touring car. I was going to say the V12 on that is supposed to be one of the most reliable from that era. Yeah. 
simply because they didn't lean into it as hard as they did on the 550. And right. so to slot it into its product placement, but as a result of that, it you know doesn't break. But there's plenty of these ultra rich Japanese track rats that have taken four five sixes and put them on places like Sukuba and Fuji and other and put them against other cars like 911 turbos and M3s and stuff. And the 456, as curvy as she is and everything else, she can hold her own against those other cars. And I was shocked at some of those videos. Granted, these are six speed V12s, not the automatics, but I think can scoot and it can handle. I mean, it does have some body roll to it. I'm of the personality that if I could tighten it up, I think it'd be a performer. I think it's a, it's one of those wolves in sheep's clothings. Yes. And Eric, was it you that sent me the video? Somebody sent me a video of, and I think they were in Japan, and it was a 456 on a racetrack. It was full race prep 456. This damn thing is keeping up with an F40. Yep. The only challenger to that car is an F40. And as long as she keeps that F40 behind her, she's fine. But sure enough, the F40 found a way around her and bam, that was it. But it wasn't it. The 456 stayed right on the rear end. Dogged them the whole way around the track. Yeah, it was awesome. Incredible. Incredible. And you think of how much weight the, and granted, okay, they prepped it a little bit. So I'm sure it lost a little weight, but it's still just a heavy, heavy car compared to an F40. You would think there's no way this car could hang on to it, but sure enough, there it is. No, I, I, I've really, really started becoming a fan of the uh, 456. I really have automatic five speed. Doesn't matter. I just, I was going to bring this up later, but do we have any research on manual swaps for 456? Because I think to me, that's the key to a lot of car value in some situations where the manual swap is relatively easy, like an F430, where you can go in, do it. It's a known quantity. It's not a rabbit hole. And then all of a sudden, you're just in a totally different category from a car value perspective. And yeah, sure, the market will figure that out. But it's if you can pick up an automatic on the cheap and do a manual swap for 20 grand, and then it just becomes like a totally different car. I think that's really interesting. I'm I'm with you on that. I think at that point, it's worth doing if it's doable. And there's probably a high probability that that transmission is probably shared with something else. And more than likely, it's probably a ZF transmission or something, you know, that I don't know that maybe Ferrari built those drivetrains or maybe they're Fiat transes. And then we got other things to think about, but... Isn't the automatic a GM unit? Was the automatic on the 46 from General Motors? That I'd have to check. You're just trying to bring us back to that freaking Cadillac again, aren't you? <laughs> Speaking of the Cadillac. <laughs> oh, you know? here we go. <laughs> but there is another car that I want to bring up for us to chew on. And it's my the second. Riata. No, stop. <laughs> it's a weird car. It is not Italian. It just has an, a Spanish sounding name. That said, there is another car. It's my second least favorite car on the planet. And those of you that listen to the show know my number one least favorite car on the planet is the Citroen DS, followed by. I was just having one of those. What is wrong with you? Why are you going to hate a DS? God. Dude, don't even get me started. I hate oh those things. God. You know why he hates the DS? He hates the DS because it is French, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> he is Italian. He has no choice but to hate us. We are better than him. Truth be told, I have an affinity for French cars. There's just something about the DS that gets under my skin. We'll put a pin in that for now. My second least favorite car on the planet, second to the Citroen DS, is the Ferrari Mondial T. Oh. And I know you guys are going to tell me I'm wrong, but... Yeah, so wait, by show of thumbs, like Roman Coliseum style, <laughs> come down. Yeah. Now, you wait a moment here. You wait a moment. I'm going to tell you a story. Okay? Oh, man. 
Here we go. Story time. Get the editor ready. I was a hater of the Mondial too. I used to hate it all the time. But then I went to Concorso Italiano, and I got to tell you, this is where I was changed. There it was, sitting on the green, on the field, all by itself. Dark gray, lightly tinted windows, a coupe. I got to tell you, I, I was a changed man. All the rest of them, I don't like. You're right. I still don't like the Mondial. But that one, painted correctly, Wow, it actually came out pretty nice. So I learned that if you put the right makeup on an ugly person, they can look pretty good. Like that sister you were talking for? Jeez. <laughs> Here's the conundrum with it, though, because that's like a $25,000 car. You know, you can get those pretty cheap nowadays. And it's basically the running gear of a 328 or 348, right? I think it's a 348, if I'm not mistaken. Is when I thought it was a 308. 308? Okay. It goes both ways. Yeah. yeah. It goes both ways. You have a 308 and then the yeah. 328. Yeah. yeah depending yeah. on the year. So it's got the same suspension, the same engine, the same transmission, the same steering box, the same everything, except for they wedged a little bit more space in there. And, yeah. and I agree with you. I, I know they're not anything to look at, but if you were to just like set that aside and go bang for the buck, and I'm not talking about maintenance, if it's going to be a maintenance hassle, then you're in a world of hurt. But if you got a good one that was driven and cared for, you get that for $25,000 and you can rip, you can have a blast in that thing. So that's my mm -hmm. counter argument, but it's still too ugly. It's just ugly. Yeah, I mean, it's a light car. It's got 300 horsepower. It, it's got a scoop. Mm -hmm. You can have fun with it. Beauty's in the eye of the beholder. I mean, it's one of those situations. As it ages, is it going to be more attractive to someone? No, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I got I to gotta side with William on that one and, and Chris, too. You're getting a lot of car for the money. You really, really are. It, okay, it's an 80s Ferrari, early 90s Ferrari. You are getting quite a bit of, of car for the money. And I think the younger generation is going to embrace those cars. You got to think you, you're going after the Radwood crowd. And as the 308, 328 continue to just skyrocket in value, people are going to start looking, well, what's the next step? And then they'll realize, oh, my God, the Mondial is pretty much the same car. It just got four seats. And like I say, I was a changed guy. I always hated the Mondial. I always thought they were ugly and, and horrible. But then I saw the gray one. And I'm not kidding you. I'm not joking around. When I saw that gray one, I thought, you know, that actually looks really good. And I think that's it. There are some cars that just have a presence and they need to be painted seriously. They Are you going to paint a 456 bright red? I've seen them. They look okay. But in my opinion, they look a lot better when they're blue or dark gray or that silvery gold color. They have to have a sort of a businessman's presence to them. And I think the Mondia was trying to do that, but it just sort of failed because people wondered, well, what is this? This is like the LeBaron of the Ferrari world. Speaking of which, Chrysler had a car called the TC. Oh, my God. No, I'm <laughs> but, but to that end, since Don has established that all Italian cars are female. No, they're all high school girls, apparently. <laughs> Unlike his painting of the flowing blonde hair of the Mondial T upon the prairie grasses of the car show, where I got impressed upon the Mondial T was with the movie Weird Science. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. It's a Ferrari. But when it pulls up next to the 928, I was like, ah, you can keep that turd. Like the, mm -hmm. And the 928's a weird car, right? By all respects and all means. But when you put them side by side, both iconic cars of the period, you're just like, nah, there's other ways I can spend 25 grand than on a Mondial T. True. But then you're getting back to guys like me who want to be a little bit different, a little bit out there. Here's my question for you. And I'm not trying to bring them back into it. Mark, 
I want you to answer this because you seem to be the number one hater. Hater. I'm a hater. Of the Alante. You seem to feel toward the Alante as, oh, as, as Eric does toward the, the Citroen DS. I never got to see a good Cadillac. There, it was post-Malaise my whole life. Wh- which one is more poser, the Mondial, the Alante, or the TC? Which one is more poser? I've never known a person who owned an Alante that didn't love the hell out of that car. There was no posing there. It was just love. Posing is this kind of disingenuous car ownership. You don't love that car. You love the way people look at you and you drive that car. That's, to me, disingenuous. The poser is the guy that builds a Lamborghini in his basement out of wood and fiberglass and tries to pass it off as the real thing, you know? Or they just buy a Gallardo. (laughs) But the point is that... (laughs) I don't know. I don't think there are any posers in that. This is a trick question. There's no posers in any of those questions. If you're driving a Mondial at this point, yeah, sure, in the 80s, 90s, whatever... Yeah, you know, someone's buying that because it was the most depreciated Ferrari. Fine. Fair enough. At this point, if you're willing to pay the maintenance bill on keeping that thing running, then you must like the damn car. No one's seeing that person driving down the street. All right, let me throw a weird one out there. You know me. I don't know where they are value-wise. I haven't been paying attention, but I've always been a fan of the Lamborghini Halpa. Oh, yeah. The Jalpa? Yeah. How do you say it? Is it Jalpa or Halpa? I've heard no both. Idea. Well, Halpa would be Spanish, so in Italian... <laughs> It's so that would be perfect then. No, no, that would be perfect because remember, Lamborghini always named their cars after Spanish bulls, Spanish bull fighters, that's true, etc. So Halpa would be the way to say it, I guess. What do y'all think of those? Am I going too far astray for the price wise yet? Have we gotten there? That's the car that people confuse for a Countach when they don't know. So it's sort of like the difference between an M3 and a three series when you kind of don't know. To me, that's where it's at. But I think there's value in that, Don, in the sense that people don't know that the Jalpa is like thing and that it can be just as cool as mm-hmm. they think mm-hmm. it's a pantera if you drive down the street in a joppa they yeah. just think they saw a pantera especially with the wing yeah if you put a wing on it 100 my point is I, I always like that car if for no other reason i love ferrari 308 everybody's gotta love a 308 those things are just a perfect car but lamborghini said hold my beer we can make a better one and that was the silhouette of course was the first one and then from the silhouette came the Halpa. And I've just always loved it for that gumption of this is our take on what a Ferrari 308 should be. And yet I, I've heard both sides of the coin. I've heard, you know, it was not as good. It was better. I mean, yeah, so I, I don't know. But I think my Fiat thing fell off the tape again. It's the rust spot underneath there. It is. Yeah. A little bit. Of, it comes from the factory that way, you know. But I think to Mark's point, though, it's one of those things you're right. It, it is a love thing. If you've got the money to put into this thing and, and you're you're dedicated to it, yeah, there's some love going on there. Or to William's point, you know, what's your end game? Is it an investment situation? Is it something you want to buy, hold for a couple of years, and then hopefully sell it with a little bit of a profit? You know, that might be a good way to go too, if you can find one. I just didn't know where the values were. I haven't been paying attention to those cars for a while. They had them in production for a long time, but they only built like 600 of them over like eight. Right. It's a rare car, but the point I would have made is not a lot of people really know what it is. They think it's a Pantera. They think it's something else. They think it's a Countach. They just don't know. You would think, oh, let's see, low production volume, whatnot. Oh, rarity. You know, think, oh, value up here. But they're actually not that expensive. Body panels and whatnot. If you crash it, you're going to be screwed on it. Motor-wise, stuff like that, you should be able to work on it yourself. And honestly, if you got some common sense to yourself, it's not that difficult of a car. It's just got very, very unique looks to it. You pull into a car and coffee with that, guarantee you, we're not going to see another one there. And you will absolutely be a poser. No. (laughs) (laughs) No, not at all. No way. For me, in this episode... This is my favorite car buying advice so far. 
is the Alpa. It's low volume, inexpensive for what it is. It's a cool car. I think that if you're looking at a collector car that you can love and, and has some potential, I like it a lot. It is going to be a pain in the ass to buy. Like I think six or seven transactions in the last five years on bringing a trailer. So, you know, that's tough. It's not going to quadruple in value in the next 10 years, but it's not going to lose all that much in value either. You're going to maintain no. your value. No, not at all. Not no. At all. Right. Yeah, I think the Halpa would be a fun one to have. It, it's a little offbeat. It's a little different. Like you guys are saying, people are going to say, what, what is that car? And I think that can be kind of fun when you have a car, you know, that not everybody knows. You, look, if you pull into a car and coffee, where you're surrounded by cars, you're surrounded by car guys, and they're saying, what kind of car is that? You've done something great. You really have. And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, William, you might know this better than me. I think they built fewer Halpas than they did Countach. They did. Oh, by, oh yeah. By oh, far. Yeah. That's what I thought. Yeah. And yet the Countach would just, I mean, that was just the poster child of 80s excess. The only problem I have with the Halpa is that it would be in line with like the Lamborghini Gala, which is another one that people don't really remember. It's the precursor to the Gallardo and the Murcielago and all those. And so you're like, do I really want that? And for the same kind of money, I know you look like a poser if you're in a Gallardo, but is it more value for the money at that point? You've got, I hate to say a commodity Lamborghini at that point, but it's not hard to go down to the Audi dealer and get parts for your 4.2 liter V8 or, you know, your V10 or whatever it is. The Halpa, yes, it's going to, or the Jalpa, it's going to be more rare, but I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm torn on that car. Like, it is the best choice so far in terms of checking all the boxes. But Chris, I think you've been sitting on some stuff. What have you got? Oh, you know, I think that like I'm a big GT guy. So I really like that idea around the 456. And you may recall from prior appearances, I owned a 928 and drove it every single day and put 200,000 miles on it. Love the car. To your point, if you drive them, they last and they don't misbehave. And same with my daily driver Alpha now. There's one that I was in recently, and this is on the cusp of kind of moving into the, we've kind of gotten with the Halpa, and I'm going to go with that pronunciation, and then we can have a Sharks and Jets kind of fight later about, we're the Jappas, we're the Halpa. <laughs> <laughs> Maserati Indy. Oh, yeah. Maserati Indy is this killer unibody GT car roomy back seat fold down back seats you can get stuff in there just like a 928 that's why i was mentioning that great sounds great manual transmission you know it's a cruiser and it's you know a ghibli is the same car with some changes but not really and it's a hundred thousand dollars more a good indie you can get like in the 50 to 60 range and i just don't even understand why that car is so cheap to be honest with you it's a great engine it's a great drivetrain, beautiful styling, beautiful car. You know, to me, that's like a real diamond in the rough. I agree. You guys are agreeing for a change. It's super weird. Shut up, Chris. You suck. <laughs> there we go. Now we're back to normal. <laughs> no, but speaking of diamonds in the rough, I think there's another car as we kind of come up the rungs of the ladder and we're talking about pricing. One of the ones that I really like in Williams world, especially in the fine art world of Italian automobiles, you know, everybody wants the short base 250, you know, the 365s, all those, you know, super rare, just like the early air cooled Porsches and stuff. There's the Lancia Flamina, 
which is basically the baby sister to the 250 short wheelbase car. It almost looks exactly the same, change the grills and, and the taillights, and it gets forgotten all the mm-hmm. time. Great car. It, the argument about the poser question is the fact is, you know, a lot of people look down, you know, especially, I guess, the non-car people, because so, they see someone driving a Ferrari, they look down, well, you got a Ferrari, you know, they're not going to know what the hell it is. Not even a lot of people in the cars will know what that car is. And again, kind of going into a cars and coffee, you're going to pull into that. That's going to be the one where people are going to come around. What is that? It's yeah. going to get that question asked, creates a great conversation. It's something different to set yourself apart than someone else that has the Ferrari, the 275, the 250, what have you. Value-wise, you know, yeah, obviously it's not where that is. What do you think a Flaminia goes for? I don't want to guess. I'm sure it's probably cool in the six figures. It has to be. Oh, it's well into the six figures. It's a, we're like 300 to 400K. See, it's, yeah. a bar- it's, a val- it's a bargain compared to the Ferrari that's like 7 million. I know, I know. But, uh, you know, the one that I really like in the Lancia range is the early ones. And I'm a huge Lancia fan, by the way. So the B20. Oh, yeah. B20 is in the just over the 100K, like the 120K range. And I know that sounds like a lot, but I think one of those got second overall in the Mille Amelia. It's a big sedan. You look at it and it's like, what is going on here? But that was the first production V6 engine in the world that came out of Vittorio Llano and a guy named Di Virgilio at Lancia. That was a groundbreaking car. It has a transaxle. It handles crazy, but it again, it's a wolf in sheep's clothing. Like you look at it and you go, what the heck is this thing? But you get one of those tuned up well and it will hang with anybody in that era. Well, there was that video, was it like two years ago or, or so, where that B20 Aurelia, where they did the chop top on it, was making, it was like a viral video. I saw one, of, like that. the guy who does those, he's done about eight of them. Yeah. I was on a tour with one last year and oh my God, it took your breath away. It was like a gorgeous. Yeah. So cool. He got a lot of heat for doing that. <laughs> They were like, what are you doing in this car? But then to your point, once it was done, they're like, oh, I get it. It's gorgeous. You know, it, they turned out fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, they're incredible. It's sort of like the Lincoln Zephyr of the Italian world, right? That B20, if you think about it. Yeah. <laughs> no, that, that, that's not far off. But there's another hidden Lamborghini kind of in that era of like the, I think it's the, uh, Mark, is it Jorama or Harama? <laughs> I'll give you a Harama. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I have a hernia trying to figure that out. It's like an early 70s. It's almost like the Lamborghini Daytona. Espada. Yeah, the Espada. Yeah. 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 It got into that little angular kind of vibe. So it wasn't the curvy Islero, which is a very cool car. The Harama was just kind of after that and had that little extra angularity to it, which some people don't find appealing. And it's very distinctive to that early 70s. I mean, but it's a crazy V12 screaming engine. It's I think what we all love about Lamborghinis, it's like, I love your Ferrari engines, but we're all children of the Cannonball Run movie. Hearing that Countach screaming engine down the, the highways, it still rings in my ears today. Mm-hmm. It's the same engine. And man, what a great GT car that is. And they are not expensive. They're just like, I think they're just getting over the 100K point right now. They are. Yeah. No Alante, Don. I mean, we just said 100K car isn't expensive. It's relative. It is relative, for sure. 
before Don brings us back to the Cadillac Alante by way of Carrozzeria Ghia, the Stutz Bearcat, and God knows what else he's got on his list, <laughs> I wanted to bring up another weird Italian brand, the Isogrifo or the Griffin. Those are pretty interesting cars, often forgotten, sort of homologated Maseratis in a way. Let's talk about those a little bit. You know, the Griso is a great car. What I love about that, what I love about those Isos, and don't forget the uh, the Revolta. A lot of people argue with me. I got nothing against the Griso, but I think the Revolta is actually just a little prettier of a car. I really do. It's a little cleaner, a little sharper. It's got a little more of that Maserati look to it. But what I love about these things, you can go to Pep Boys and get engine parts for these things. Yep. yep. It's fantastic, you know. It's a great, great way to, to go. I wanted to bring up the Maserati Mexico a little while ago. I always thought that was one of the most That's beautiful car. cars ever made. Yeah, I always thought that was a gorgeous car. Eric, now that you bring up ESO, absolutely. The Grifo and the uh, the Revolta are great ways to go, especially if you're buying your first. That whole world of the, you know, the American engine designs, you know. So we are kind of leaning into the Pantera and deferred till now. But it's like these are all birds of a feather where you have these Italian designers who don't have the wherewithal to build their own engines from scratch and just use a powerful, hotted up, hot cammed Chevy engine or Ford, I think, in the Pantera. Yeah, Pantera was Ford. It was the Cleveland 351. Hanging out with the Pantera last week. And it's like, what a crazy ass car. You know, the funny thing about the ESO Grifo, if I'm not mistaken, you had a 327, 350, or a 454. Yeah. I yeah. mean, for God's sake, you know, that, that was just incredible. But you talk about a nose-heavy beast. You know, don't try to put that thing into too many curves. Or That's one of those cars you're driving on the coast to get some Chianti in. That, that's what that is, you know. Again, you know, they start out with it. We lost, we lost them. William's dead. dead. Now just that dead. that is Italian right there. That's Italian right there. Fell right off his chair. He's so engaged, he died. The Grifos, I, that's what I love, too, because I, I, I like the mesh of the Italian design, Italian good car with the American motors. I, I want to say it takes it off the stress, so to speak, but to your point, you go down to AutoZone or whatnot and gets parts for the motor and get mm-hmm. the thing running. It's not intimidating to an owner to own it and be worried about going out and driving it because it's got an American V8 in the engine bay. Again, you're not going to be tossing this thing around, but, you know, it's a great cruising car. And it's got style for days. Again, it's kind of one of those ones you come around to, and not a lot of people will know what it is. Because it looks like a body kit on a C3 Corvette. (laughs) I mean, just to play devil's advocate. (laughs) Thanks, Mark. Thanks for putting a pin in my balloon. (laughs) You know, Mark, it's funny you bring up putting a body kit on a C3 because back in the 80s, Chrysler put a body kit on the LeBaron and they called it PC. <laughs> it's a wonderful car. It's a great way to go. Love it. I swear to God, he's going to utter the words, buy a Bricklin by the end of this episode. <laughs> uh, I should have got some weed for this. Well, since you bring it up. <laughs> we're playing a drinking game and every time you mention we're doing a shot, we all be really drunk. <laughs> So I think the 900-pound gorilla that William has brought up is, do we have a reliability problem we need to overcome? Or is it just the expertise is missing on this side of the pond? What's the issue? Like, what's the apprehension with these Italian cars? You know, I remember reading an article, I think it was Car and Driver magazine a thousand years ago, and they were talking about how to own a Ferrari 308 on a working man's budget. And I read that article five or six times to make sure I got it all. And basically it, it said the bottom line was just budget, just budget your money. 
The other thing that was a little undertone, and I think a lot of people, especially with Italian cars, don't do enough, they don't drive them. You got to get out there and drive them yeah. because that's when you're yeah. going to work out those bugs. People always say, oh, God, Italian cars, they're horrible, they're terrible, blah, 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 blah. I always wanted the 84 Quattroporte. People always thought that was just an ugly car. It was either a love it or hate it kind of car. And I, I knew one guy, he had five of them. He always said, you've got to drive them. You've got to drive them. He had a very low mile one. It was an 82. And if I remember right, that car had something like 3,000 miles on the clock. It was like brand new, but it didn't run. It was just a paperweight. His other car in 80, I want to say that was the 84. He had close to 250,000 miles on that car. And he said that car ran like a champ. No trouble, no problem. It was always going. But he did admit it took a lot of money, a lot of patience, and a lot of time to get it to that level. But once he got it there, there it was. He was brilliant. You got to drive it with a little gusto, too. You can't just putz around. You got to really kind of work right. that motor. Right. Yeah, you do. You've got to let it breathe. Yeah, you really do. And I, I think most Italian cars are that way. I really do. Well, I mean, the one thing is if you can find the person that can work on them, that's going to be your friend for life or for as long as you own that car. You're going to have a great relationship with them, period. They're going to love you. Do you have to be like a soothsayer or a mystic or some sort of prophet to work on an Italian car? I mean, an engine's an engine. Chris was saying it's a twin cam. How different is it than any Kazi or a Toyota 4AGE or anything else that's a twin cam four banger? I get the intricacies of a V12, but if you're a Jag guy, how different is the Ferrari V12 than the Jaguar V12, right? At the end of the day. So why are we so afraid of these cars? Well, that's the problem. You're afraid. If you have some sense about you and some mechanical ability, you can work on it yourself. YouTube is awesome in regards to learning stuff. I mean, you got to trust the guy that's putting the video out there, but you know, you watch a few, whatever. It's not too crazy to work on these things yourself. Avoid that $150, $200 an hour labor charge and try and do it yourself. It's not too out of the realm of trying to accomplish that. You got to have the confidence in yourself that, you know, once you take it apart, put it back together, that you go and turn the key, it starts, and then you can drive away. I think just a lot of people are intimidated by it. That's their biggest issue. I think there is a service problem, or there was years ago. And I think that that is a stigma that has stuck with the Italian car community. I really do. You know, when I got my Fiat, everybody warned me, oh my God, you're going to be in the shop all the time with that car, just get rid of it. Problem, 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 everything. And admittedly, yeah, we had to work through some bugs. But I'll tell you something. That car, when I was in college, that was my daily driver. That was the only, well, it wasn't the only car I had, but it was the daily driver. It was the one that got me to school, to work. And work was the worst. I don't know how well you guys know California, but I lived in Glendale, went to school in Pasadena, worked in Hollywood. But the work would often send me out to Beverly Hills, Malibu, sometimes Ventura, over into the San Fernando Valley. And yeah, guess what? That was the Fiat doing that run. But yes, I did have to work out some bugs. I did have to pay the mechanic because these don't like to work on cars. But I think it goes back to it's an old stigma. I really, really do. I I, I think they're quirky. Maybe the way they're designed, they're engineered, whatever. But you do have to drive them. You've got to work those bugs out. And William, you're right. Thanks to the day and age of YouTube, you can find almost anything out there about how to fix or how to tune or how to dial it in. And thanks to the internet, there's a whole community out there who can help you out with this as well. You, you got a question. You don't understand the, the YouTube video. Go on Facebook. You're going to find a community out there who's going to be able to help you dial in whatever it is you're trying to dial in. Eric, you brought it up. 
why are we so afraid of these? Why are the ESOs so attractive because they've got a Chevy engine under the hood? I think that just goes to economics. It just makes it easier if you are going to work on it. It's easier to go to Chief Auto Parts or AutoZone or whatever and buy a water pump for a Chevy engine than it is a Maserati, Lamborghini, Ferrari, whatever. So that just boils down to economics and parts availability. I don't think anybody should really be afraid of an Italian car. I don't. I think you should go in it with a little bit of caution, a little bit of education, have some guys around you who really, really know these cars like William does, like Chris does, like some other people out there. Go on Facebook and start to learn these cars before you dive in. See which one might be right for you. I think that's really the best way to go. And it just enhances your ownership experience, too. I mean, when you work on that car yourself, as we all know, and you get your hands dirty and greasy and stuff like that, the ownership of that car, it just takes it to a different level because of you're just becoming that much more connected with it. It creates that relationship. It just it makes it that much better owning that car when you work it on yourself because you you know it. Then you start to really know the intricacies of that car mm -hmm. and learning what it's about. Mm -hmm. And especially with Italian cars back, the older ones that they just, Almost everyone was kind of a little different than the next one that came down the line because, you know, as the day went on, you know, they were drinking their wine on the assembly line. You know, hey, you know, some corners get cut or whatnot, but, you know, each car is going to have its own little quirks and stuff like that. And you learn about it. And that's what's great about owning those cars because it becomes your car. I'm going to disagree. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to disagree first. Oh, shit, Mark. Sorry. So I'm a Ferrari 348 owner. Service position, engine out. Exactly. You have to be careful. And, and I don't disagree. Working on your cars is good, but it's kind of soured me a little bit on Ferrari. It's a lot of low volume unobtainium. And they put in planned obsolescence in there. So they the engine out belt change it needs to be done every three years. Well, guess what? You're always in the window of having to do that. Either you just had it done and you spent 12 grand to have it done. And it's really hard to do on your own. There's special tools and dropping your engine out. It's not like changing some filters or anything. Dropping an engine out is a, you have to know what the hell you're doing. It's one of those things. Yes. If you're mechanically inclined and you have the equipment to do it, but you've got to have the tool sets to do it. And that is by design by Ferrari because they wanted to keep enough action going through the maintenance phase in their local dealerships that make them make sense. If it's a low volume car, you're not going to get enough work to keep the mechanics around and keep them fed and happy. So I think that's one of the dirty little secrets of the car world, especially the Ferrari world, is that they've really kind of built that maintenance cycle in to be a little bit beyond the normal maintenance cycle of any other cars that are out there. You know, I think that's a little disappointing. Now, that isn't true necessarily of earlier Ferraris and the later ones. Now, they're so electronic and digital that you know, it's like you have to be more of a computer guy than a mechanical guy to deal with them. But the parts are low volume and they're often made of exotic materials. Like here, I have a recent example. Something wasn't feeling right in my transmission. I take it to the shop. In the 348, they use what's called a dual mass flywheel. So in the flywheel and the clutch, they have grease packed in there to be a shock absorber. Well, I don't know if you know about grease and if grease and how a clutch works, it's a frictional device, right? If any of that grease leaks out, guess what? You've got to tear the whole thing down. The good thing is it's very accessible on that car. It's just like, okay, that's unnecessarily complicated for that car, right? They wanted to bring their F1 technology in. It's a great car. Like I, I will say with a 348, it always gets called the baby Testarossa because of the stripes on the side. 
but it's actually closer to a baby F40. It's got the longitudinal engine. It's got the cooling ducts behind the driver. A lot of the steering is very similar. It's a great car. It's a ripper. It's fun. It's not going to be the world's fastest car. It's kind of gotten beyond that. It's got go-kart, one of the best steering, I think. Oh, yeah. It's one of the last true manual Ferraris, like the end of the day. Absolutely yeah. that. Well, as I say, it's the, the 348 and the 355, your major services, it's all engine out, everything coming out. It's like, and when, uh, I'm going to hack his last name up, but when Luca Dimatsubaba, <laughs> he started recognizing these problems and they said, because oh, when he came on the Furious, the 355 was already basically coming out and doing it. So it was, all right, so the 360 came. Because 360 belt service, they got the panel door, whatnot. So you have to take the engine out. You can get to it. You can go to your local guy that knows how to do it. Three, four grand. Still not cheap. But the beauty things when they went to the 430, everything went to chains, everything like that. Hey, you know, kind of solve some of those issues there. But it's unfortunate in regards to some of those things. Because yeah, I mean, you have to know what you're doing, and it kind of goes to the ownership. To your point, either you just had it done or you're planning to have it done. You have to put in your budget. All right, you got to balance it out. That you got to roughly have. Five, six grand a year, you got to basically kind of put aside in your mind that you're going to have for maintenance. Now, one year, you might only have to do two, three grand, but the following year might be seven or eight. So it's it's kind of one of the things you also have to think. It's just, it's part of the ownership. A lot of people get intimidated by that. And that's why they kind of steer clear because they're like, oh, I don't want to spend the money. But I say, well, any older car you're going to have, you're going to have to spend the money. It's just depending on what model is and what it's going to take. It's just part of the ownership of it. Would I tackle doing an engine out? Do you think? No. You know, I know my limitations, very cautious in regards to what I'm going to do myself. You know, I know what I can and can't do. I'm more than happy to have my guy down the street, you know, take that cars and just have at it. Here's my credit card. Charge me. <laughs> There's a lot to be said there. I mean, I'm still trying to put two and two together with Chris's spaghetti sauce powered dual mass flywheel because the Germans <laughs> install metal plates and springs and things. So I'm trying to figure out how this viscous setup actually works, but we'll, we'll put a pin in that as well. But the Ferraris, I think, give the rest of the brands a bad rap, whether it be the Fiats or the Maseratis or Lamborghinis and so on. They all have their complexity. The Magnetti Morelli Electronics, they're right up there with Lucas, unfortunately. To William's point, if you know how to turn a wrench, some of those more, let's call them basic engines, even the twin cam alphas and stuff like that, the V6s, the Busso engines, those you shouldn't be afraid of. Because honestly, I'd recommend those power plants over a flat six Porsche any day. I know Mark can sympathize with me on this because timing a flat six is a pain in the neck. If you do it wrong, you blow up half the motor. You know, there's a lot of intricacies in the German engines, high tolerances, all this kind of stuff. The Italian motors, non-Ferrari engines, they're pretty stout. I mean, they're designed to rev to like 10 billion RPM all day long. Where do you think Honda got the idea from? I, I don't know. I, I just don't want to sour people's impression of Italian cars by basing it solely on Ferrari. I think there's still some gems out there. Fair point. So one, I might add, we haven't addressed either of the other two price categories. We've spent the last hour and a half, you know, sub 50. Oh, we're, we're getting there. We're climbing up. So take us there. I, I, I would say if you're going with one of our sub 50K relatively exotic recommendations, they're very low volume and that's a real fucking problem, right? You're shipping stuff from Italian junkyards at that point to get back to you when some just 30-year-old piece of metal fails, as it is wont to do. I haven't heard in the sub-50K any obvious future classic, the two most obvious ones to me being the Quadrifoglio Giulia and the Alpha 4C. The 4Gs, that was on my list. I mean, obviously the 4C isn't as good as it came in objectively, but subjectively you can make a strong argument for it. Transmission notwithstanding, it's a really cool little car. <laughs> 
under 50K, you've got the quadrifolio and you got the 4C. And those things are much more modern. They skip all of these kind of problems, carbon tub notwithstanding. And you're in a situation to deal with them in a much more uh, reasonable, contemporary kind of fashion. I'm with you, Mark. If I had to start all over again and to satisfy that itch, check that box that says, thou shalt own an Italian car to be a proper petrol head. I think the 4C is the answer. To your point, it's not as good as a Cayman, but it's better than an Elise. If you think about it from that perspective, it's better than a lot of other cars, maybe not as good as some, but the power plant in the 4Gs comes right out of the Julia. It's a two liter turbo. It's a commodity engine, right? They've been running that two liter turbo in a bunch of stuff overseas. So it's not an exotic engine, but it's hopped up, right? 250 horsepower, whatever they make. The way that car is built, that whole monocoque design they came up with, If you, there's a whole thing on History Channel about that car specifically, because it's extremely unique the way they do it. It's F1 technology. And yet somehow managed to be heavier than a bonded aluminum chassis in its competitor. I, I know we're not going to go there. We're not going to go there, but you can pick one up for 35 grand. Yeah, no, hundred percent. No, hundred percent. I, I totally, I totally recommend it. You forego a manual transmission. That's the only thing that would keep me from a 4C. It is at the top of my list. It's a dry dual clutch yep. that they bought from Dodge. That's the really unfortunate part. Stellantis. I had Stellantis. Man, if you're suffering from Stellantis for more than four hours, see a doctor, all right? I had to get the appointment for that shit. I have Stellantis and I have an appointment in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to ask, you know, so for a bigger car, what about the Quattroporte? It's been around longer. You can find them for within probably 25 to 45, depending on the year and the, I guess, the the mileage and everything. It's fugly. Mm. It looks like a fish. How dare you? (laughs) <laughs> is that bad it looks like a fish how dare you how dare you sir i think the quattroporte is a good looking car it's like a very dangerous fish it's like an exotic yes. and dangerous fish it's an exotic catfish it has those buick air inlets along the like the fenders along the hood it's ridiculous it's like a roadmaster like i, I can't it, it's got that big gaping mouth like a carp like i don't get it thought we were friends so I want to I, I want to hear from the real Italian petrol heads, like Chris and, <laughs> and William, what their thoughts are. Eric, Eric is the only Italian. He, he's a, an Italian redneck. Quattroporte. Fuck. Fuck. Not a fan. And I'm talking about the, the mid to late 2000s. Not he the, said the two votes fugly. Two votes fugly. Let's Roman style voting. Quattroporte. <laughs> It's an executive car. What are those? It's an executive car that I can fit in. See, yeah, there's a whole. <laughs> it's an Italian car that I can squeeze my frame into. And I don't know. William maybe have a, has a different opinion. I mean, good running gear, I guess, but it's also kind of expensive. We were talking about Maseratis earlier, kind of being problematic, the SCs and that kind of stuff. And it's like, I think we can all agree it's no Alante. <laughs> no, no one's recommended the buy turbo. Where's yeah, I was going to go there because no one recommends the buy turbo because you have to buy it with 200,000 miles. B turbo. <laughs> the Jalpa crowd is says it by turbo. <laughs> so I'm going to start calling the Audi S4 B turbo next too. All right, so it's all good. 
you know, nobody recommends those cars because they're like Jags. If it has low mileage, run away from it. The bi-turbo is notoriously just terrible. It's a nightmare car. I've met some people that own them and they're like, it's fantastic for the five seconds that it runs. But if you don't find one with high mileage, it means it was not a runner. And that's, that's a scary reality with those cars. I've heard you got to rewire them soup to nuts. Again, do you want to go through that nightmare? No, but yeah. (laughs) Magnetti Morelli for the win. I think we're turning into the Jerry Lewis telethon of of podcasts. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) (laughs) It's Layman. Jerry said, hey, Ed, I hear the Tiffany. (laughs) Emmy Davis and I are sitting over here. We're going to have Carol Channing come out and sing with us. (laughs) Hey, Mark. That's low. He's going right for you. I just yeah. hang my head in shame. I think we ought to like spend some time in the fantasy world. Of I think so too. The Amazo cars, the ones that we all dream of. And and I'm going to ask a controversial question. Oh, Utosh, would you own one? Thumbs. Oh, wow. Four votes down, two votes up. I'm imagining Don getting into a, a Kuntosh right now. Nope. <laughs> which, which half of him? I'm going to tell you a little secret. With a little bit of Vaseline... And a, a, a shoehorn and a guy pushing, I can get into a Kuntash. Ask him how he knows. No, don't ask. No. Otherwise, I'll bring up an Alante. <laughs> I'd rather own a Diablo, to be clear. Yes. So Thank you. Thank you. Diablo's where it's at. And the Kuntash was on our walls. And then I don't come from car stock. You know, my parents didn't care about cars or anything, but I did. Cannonball Run, I saw there was a car show and they were going to have a Countach show up. So I went to this car show and I was like utterly disappointed, I have to say. It was like there was this era where the front wheels were like just a little too small, a little too weird looking. I think it's true with the Testarossa of, you know, kind of that general era. Like when you look at them, they're just not scaled exactly right. Now, the next generation, they got it right and all that sort of stuff. I've never owned one, so I can't talk about the ownership issue. And maybe one of y'all can or William might play in that world. But a Diablo, a Murcielago, something like that. I'm there all day. And if I could have a dream car, it might be the Mura. I just think that's a beautiful, beautiful, amazing car. Everyone's dream car is a Mura. Yeah. The Mercy E-Gear is uninteresting to me personally. Yeah. The Mercy E-Gear. I mean, the Mura set the stage for what we define as exotics, right? Let's let's be serious. But Yeah, no, 100%. When you bring up Diablo, you have to be very careful with that because I think there's Gen 1 and Gen 2, even though that's not an official thing. Because I'm a pop-up headlights Diablo guy. Early Diablos. Because the later closed over kind of competizione look with the SVs and the SVJs, where they kind of bloated them, they changed the wheels to your point, came in those funky uh, plum crazy and all those weird colors that you know they were getting from dodge that they were painting them in i just uh, it doesn't do it for me remember one thing though when we're talking about lamborghini and go back to the miura the miura is the car that put the super exotic on the map that was the car that said this is what we're going for that was the car that made ferrari say oh shit what do we get ourselves into when we piss that farmer off so he builds the miura the Miura had a major Achilles heel, which was transverse engine. Fuel tank in the front end, weight 
yep, front end weight, the way the engine was mounted, it created a lot of handling problems. The Countach came along and its job was to not only solve that, but again, put the fear into the heart of Ferrari. And at this point, it started splitting the crowd. Now, Eric, to your color thing, one of the separating dynamics that made Miura so popular was the color palette that was available. Ferrari was all red. It was just red. Everything was going to be red with Ferrari. But we were in the 60s. The psychedelic movement was coming out. Younger people had some money. And so Lamborghini cashed in on that by offering the psychedelic colors. And that really, really worked for them. So when the Countach era came along, they were kind of getting away from that. They wanted to go into something totally different, get away from the Miura, get away from what we used to do in the 60s is over. Let's move forward. The Countach takes us into 1989 from what, 1974. And you had a car that stepped up to the ball plate and you talk about the most unapologetic, the most dynamic, ridiculous looking car. You know, Chris, you brought it up. The wheels didn't look quite right on the first, on the earliest series. They, they really didn't. In fact, if you look at the early series Countach, they didn't really look right at all. They looked a little weird. It wasn't until they started refining it and made it what it was. I stay away from the anniversary editions. I think those are an abomination. I think they're horrible. I hate to say that, but there's too much Tupperware going on. My only problem with Diablo, and this is where I still side with Countach, is the Diablo was essentially a Chrysler design, which is really interesting that when you go later down the line and Eric, you hit the nail on the head, they started coming up with all the Dodge colors. Well, that was the way a lot of people saw it. They thought, oh my God, they're stealing colors from Chrysler Corporation. No, they were trying to go back to the Miura days because they were the ones who brought it up first. Chrysler copied them back in the 60s and 70s. The psychedelic movement, that's where it came from. When Chrysler invested so heavily, they saw what they thought was a really ugly car. And that really ugly car became, and forgive me, Eric, I know I'm messing this up badly with your accent, but I think I'm saying it right. The Chisetta Morada. The Chisetta, yeah. I was going to bring that car up, the V16. Chisetta, yes. And that car was supposed to be the original Diablo. Correct. Chrysler said, no, 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 no. That car looks way too ugly. It doesn't look good enough. We're taking the design back to Detroit and we're going to smooth it over. We're going to make it more like maybe a Chrysler TC or LeBan. Oh, jeez. Like <laughs> and that became the Diablo. Now, I have nothing against Diablo except to me, when you have the Miura stepping up to the plate and telling everybody, by the way, I am Lamborghini. And people took a breath and said, oh, my God. And then that car wore out and they said, ah, we're going to knock your socks off again. They said, by the way, I am Countach. Holy cow. And what does that translate to? Countach. So you have these unforgiving looking cars coming out of Sant'Agata. And then there was Diablo. It's easy to make one of these cars when it, you make it unlivable. You know, the Diablo, only by Lamborghini standards could you call it more practical. For Christ's sake, it's a Diablo. It's still trying to murder you, and it's still wholly impractical. And that's where we go back to the Jalpa Halpa. Jalapeno? The Lamborghini Jalapeno. Jalapeno. Yeah, exactly. Because that was, to the point that was made earlier, more of a competitor to the 308. It was more of a driver's car. The Countach, every review I've ever seen about it, whether it was filmed yesterday or 30 years ago, people are like, you can't see out of it. It's noisy. It's hot. It's undrivable. It steers like a truck. It's all sizzle and just no steak at the end of the day, right? So it's very flashy. And I've always wondered, because you don't hear 
people talking about Diablos. You don't see them in shootouts like that Japanese videos that we were talking about. You don't, you just never see Diablos, maybe because they made three of them. Yeah, they're low volume because the Countach was so revolutionary that they made a ton of them. It stuck around forever. But I think that undrivability is still there in the Diablo. You can't see out of it. It still steers like a bus. You know, all those kinds of things that didn't get corrected until you got to the Gala prototype, the Murcielago, the the Gallardo, and all those R8 platform-based Lamborghinis when they're finally straightened out. Even the Countach is an engineering miracle. If you look at how that motor is mounted on top of the transmission and the shifter is directly into the tail, I mean, it's bonkers. The prop shaft goes through the engine. Oh, it's it's absolutely insane. It's like, what mental patient came up with this thing? And then, you know, again, we get into the reliability question and maintenance and all that. Kutash is just so over the top extreme. I love them. Don't get me wrong. And I do like the JC Whitney body kit ones, you know, the later ones, non-US bumpers and all that kind of stuff. You mean the Tupperware edition? Yeah, <laughs> 100%. Only came in white. The Tupperware edition. Yeah, David Hasselhoff drives them, you know, those kind of cars. Uh, Lamborghini. I mean, they are the poster on the wall, but then you have Testarossa on the other side saying, look, I'm here too. That was less interesting. I mean, the Countach was everything you wanted to be in your fantasies. It's just in reality, like I was describing earlier, when you saw it in real life, it didn't quite live up to the eye candy that it was on the poster. Even when you see it on TV, one of those things like, oh, okay, it's like when you meet a famous actress and it's like, you're not exactly what I remember. I'll never meet your heroes. <laughs> no, I mean, I think it's fair to appreciate the longevity of the Countach, right? Like, I was going to say the Countach is like a, was a little bit like the GTR, but it's probably more appropriate to say the GTR was more like a Countach. And that it was revolutionary when it landed and, and that gave it the longevity that it had. And by the time you're really complaining about it, it's very long in the tooth from a car design uh, perspective. They didn't have a choice, though, is because they're going through bankruptcy so many times. They, didn't, they couldn't Yeah, I mean, it. they couldn't make money. You know, <laughs> exactly. that notwithstanding, you know, reasons notwithstanding. To your analogy, Mark, I think the Countach is closer to the GT40 than anything else. Because if you look at how it evolved, and even now, the modern Countach, when we stack that on top of the pile, it really follows more of the Ford lineage than it does anything else in its evolution. That's fair. I'm not going to argue on that one. It was a big deal. And that's why it was able to, to maintain the sales volume relative for its time, low volume for today. It, it was sticky. Now we can flip that over. If you want to buy a drivable Diablo to go into Don's world, just buy a Viper and get it over with. A Dodge product with a Lamborghini engine in it. Uh, or buy one of the early first gen rear wheel drive ones and call it a All right. I'm going to throw one out here could be the one car i would buy oh oh we're talking about what we'd actually do that's a different conversation. ferrari 288 gto oh my mm. god an f40 with a street body when, on it. when you'd actually <laughs> buy what for like half a million dollars or uh, yeah we're in fantasy land man we're not the <laughs> Yeah, if I win the Mega Millions, sure. The problem with the 288 GTO is that, yes, it's awesome. It's like the 512 BB, right? You're like, that is super cool. Until you realize for slightly more money, you just buy an F40 and call it a day. Actually, less money. Because the 288 GTO, its DNA is in the F40. I'd, I'd rather have the F40. An F40 is cheaper than a 288. Play that right now. 288, you're at about 3 million plus. Your, your F40s are... Two to two five, depending on what mileage and whatnot going on it. So, if I had my druthers, I'd take the F40 over the 288. I love the 288. You know, that's one of my favorite cars. It's kind of 
right there and have that F40 and Twin Eight are like right there. But if I had to pick one, I'd take the F40. It's just such a raw analog car, nothing in it. That's just motor, pedals, seat, and go. You know, it's just a great car. It's Roman vote time. F40 or 288? Up is F40, down is 288. <laughs> uh, I think the F40 wins you vote, again. John. There's no abstention. There's no, there's no, you know, you can't abstain. Fist is F50. Fist is you're disconnected. Fist Boom, is F50. F50, no. Now, honestly, the F50 is probably the least, it's one of the most underrated cars, even though it's like well-respected. It's Ferrari's Diablo. It's terrible. No, no, no. V12. No, it's not even Ferrari Diablo. It's more like Ferrari TC. <laughs> That's how bad that car is. Ferrari Alante. I mean, I don't like the Enzo either, or the, I don't really like the FXX. I mean, it's cool. It's like the Batmobile, but all those after the F40, it's like they couldn't figure out what to do because the F40 was so perfect and so timeless. You know, you know, it's funny, Eric, sorry, Chris, to drag this back, but going back to the Lamborghini, the Diablo was that moment for Lamborghini where they sort of said, God, what do we do after Countach? And I think that was where the F50 fell. After you did that F40, what do you do? Throw air conditioning in it and a stereo? Call it a day? Well, it also had hood scoops. That's right. Yeah. I mean, the hood scoops and the air conditioning, it's totally different. Yeah. Yeah. Totally <laughs> different car. Totally different car. Ferrari has kind of lost its way in the last 20 years. They're building years. an SUV been... for Christ's sake. Yeah, but they sell, and you got to think that's what they need now is that money. I mean, even Lamborghini is building an SUV, the Urus or Urus, however you want to say it. I think that's actually a pretty damn cool car. I really, really do. It has that little bit of that unforgiving, edgy look. As one of our previous guests put it, Don, it's the prettiest Pontiac Aztec. <laughs> it is. It really is. It really, but it'll go 200 miles an hour. Is that such a big deal these days? I'm not sure that it is. And you have the cachet of saying, I've got a Lamborghini. And let's face it, the last time Lamborghini built an SUV, it was called the LM002. It was the precursor to the Hummer. The Stallone mobile. That thing was something else. But it was built for the, uh, the, was it the Saudi Arabian Army? Saudi Arabian, yeah, Army. They wanted this car, and then they said, no, we don't want it. And Lamborghini said, I bet we can sell this thing. They made like 50 of those. Wow. Yeah, they actually put it out there. Wasn't it codenamed the Cheetah or something like that? Yeah, yes. Cheetah. Yeah, very good. Yeah, that was the Cheetah. Yeah. So you got to admit, going from the LM002 to the Urus, boy, that's a hell of a leap. You know, that that really is. And again, the LM002, the Ferrari SUV, which was the company that put high-performance SUVs on the map? Oh, was it Porsche? Porsche, yeah. Who made all the 911 guys? Oh, my God, I'm building an SUV. Oh, Jesus. And it was horrible for them. But you know what? Ooh, damn. If those Porsche don't bring in the cash. <coughs> Toreg. They totally bring the cash. Toreg. Just want to point that out. The Cayenne is a Toreg. It is. You can't compare the LM002 to the Urus. The Urus is just an Audi. Yeah, it's a Q7 or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But but that actually brings up a really good point that I want to touch on earlier. We're going to go back to the fantasy cars. Stellantis has the opportunity to mimic the GM model of the tier system. And I really, truly believe to answer Brad's question from before about the Maserati Quattroporte, does he fit in it and this and that? I think Maserati should actually stop building cars and be the SUV brand for Stellantis because they're, they're again, they're going to start competing with themselves. Alpha has the Stelvio, Ferrari's come mm-hmm. out with their thing. Then there's the Tonale, which is going to be dubbed here as the Hornet. It's like, no, 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 split it up. 
Ferrari makes the sports cars like Porsche. VW makes the Econo boxes. Audi makes the luxury cars. Stellantis needs to do the same thing with Fiat, Maserati, Ferrari, and all the brands that are under their umbrella right they, now. They, they've gone in the other direction with releasing their latest exotic Maserati, right? Yeah, 100%. But the Maserati SUV actually looks good. I like that fish look. It, it works for that thing. It doesn't work as a sedan, in my opinion. But let's put that aside. Let's get back to fantasy land. William, and I'm not, I'm not trying to downplay where you're coming from. Throw us some bargain cars, 250 bargain. and above. Bargain, 250 and above. Uh, Bugatti EB110. That's French. Oh, right. The original, the original EB110. French. Uh, sorry, you want, to, you want to throw it out there? It's just, I just, you know, to me, I just think that's a great car. I just, French. if you want to go above, we got to keep it Italian. <laughs> There's a lot of cars on top of my head trying to go and keep it Italian. What about the Daytona, the 365s? Where are they clocking in at? Oh, you want to go old? No, or wherever, wherever you want to go, oh. man. Take us on a journey here. Take me on a trip. <laughs> Miami Vice, we are 1984. Let's go. You can't beat a 275 GTP 4 cam. Those things drive phenomenal that's a car you could drive i want to say on a daily basis but that's a car you could drive around continuously it's not going to beat you up the motor's fantastic you don't have to worry about keeping up in the revs great great engine in that car if you want to get really crazy start getting into like a, a 250 california drop top Ferris bueller that's just a dream car you know and you really want to get obnoxious you go to the 250 gto you know you start getting into those type of cars but you get in that say the 250 to 750 range Here's my thought on pricing on these cars. To be, it's some of these cars, I don't understand how they're priced where they're at because I just don't see it. But, you know, the market's going to dictate what something's worth. So let me ask you this. What's the car that you get requested the most to search for, at least in the Italian side? The F40, the 288 GTO. Wow. Okay. Those are the two I probably get the most trying to find. When you get to those cars, the next question is, okay, all right, how many owners, mileage, original paint, you know, service history? They really want to start with it down and then you start getting costs. Right? Okay, okay, I have one that's got six owners. It's got, you know, 20,000 miles and it's now, okay, you're at 2.9. But then if you get a, a two owner car, original paint, classy certified, red books, the whole nine yards. Okay, you're at 3.7, 3.8 million. It's going to run the gamut on what someone wants to pay and what they want to do with the car. And again, it's like not a lot of these people that buy this car really go out and go, hey, I'm going to drive this thing and put miles on it, whatnot. No, they're buying it more as an investment than anything. They're going to use it. They're going to take it to shows. They want it to show their buddies and say, hey, look, I bought one. I finally got one. I'm part of the club. One of those situations, which is unfortunate because you should get out and drive the cars. What we said earlier in our conversation, you, know, you need to go out and drive those cars. They're meant to be driven. It's a car. Go out and enjoy it. But those are the ones that are really kind of get the most requests for it. Again, the person that's buying those now is the person that had those cars, and those posters on the wall. People that are in following that age group between, you know, your late 30s, early 40s into your mid, late 50s, early 60s. They're going to go after those 80s supercars, hypercars that they grew up and they loved. The guy that's looking for the 275, they're looking for the 60s front engine V12s. That guy's looking to complete a collection. You know, he's got 20, 30 cars, and that's one he needs to finish off what he's looking for. There's something special about it that he wants it. It's a different buyer when you start getting to those level of cars. You know, it's not someone that's that's the only one I'm ever going to own. Yeah, I mean, you're going to have your outlier here and there with someone. They're going to put all the money into one car because that's a dream car. It's a different type of buyer that's going into that market and buying those cars at that price point. If I'm looking in this exotic price point, the first thing that comes to mind for me, I don't know how they pronounce it. Is it MAT? Is it Matt? The Stratos remake oh, that yeah. they do on top of the F430 chassis. So basically you give them a donor F430 
and they give you back a Stratos ish 130% version type car. I think eight inches out of the chassis on the F430, shorten the wheelbase. You know, yeah, it's stupid expensive. Reviews I've read around it are like 500K British pounds on top of the donor car to get where they are. But for me, if I'm looking at stuff I'd like to have, it, it seems like a really, really well done version of that kind of car. Rather have that than just a Stratos proper. I mean, a Stratos Stradale is like 500K. I'd rather have that Wizzy V6 right behind my head. Legit, total rally heritage, that DNA in there. I think that's a cool car. I like that car, but it's like, I'd rather have, for the same money, you can have the real deal. That's fair. I think, I'm not sure how many public options they've really had for the Lancia Stratos since the values of everything has gone up through the roof. Mm -hmm. Was it 500K four years ago? Certainly it was. I'm not sure it would be 500K today. I have a hard time finding public examples of that. That notwithstanding, they're two different cars, right? It's like owning the GT40 from the early 90s versus the original right. one. They made a modern car that looked like the shape of the original GT40. Didn't have all of those compromises. You're looking at a lot of compromises to get into some mid-70s original Stratos right. versus F430 that they put yeah. body panels on to turn. <laughs> to turn into a Stratos. You know, it, it, and it kind of brings up the whole idea of these like newer versions of things. We were talking about that Outlaw Lancia, you know, an Alphaholics GTA kind of thing where they go through and they take a, from the ground up, a brand new GTV bodied Alfa Romeo that's got carbon fiber, all the bits and bobs. And it's like, it's cool, but it's kind of like, it's starting to fall into that resto mod world where it's like yeah 100 i mean the, the people are looking at what singer did with porsche right. and saying can i do that in these other market niches right. and in the alfa romeo and saying like you know what i'm gonna just redo all these body panels and carbon fiber right i'll have cosworth build this out and we're just gonna yeah i mean at that point it, you're getting them to absurdity land it's an amazing place to be if you can afford to be there yeah don you've been very quiet yeah. He hasn't found another oh. American car pinned by an, an Italian yet. <laughs> I was just looking on eBay for some Alantes for sale. I'm going to be going out to Palm Springs, have a steak and a few martinis, and I want a nice new Alante to take out there. And I'm debating 4.9 liter or North Star. And that, that's my big problem today. <laughs> oh, my God. I think I threw up in my mouth a little bit. <laughs> I'll tell you a car that we haven't brought up. I think I'm in the right price range here. I think it's called Maserati MC12. Remember those cars? Yeah. They They're reintroducing like a new one. Yeah. They, they built like 25 of them, if I remember correctly. And then they built another 25 later on. I always thought those were kind of a neat car because it, it was, you know, it's almost goes back to that category of what kind of car is that? You know, you pull into a cart and coffee and a lot of people might wonder, is that a Ferrari? Is that a Lamborghini? What is that thing? And then you tell them it's a Maserati. Oh, a Maserati. You know, they'd never seen it before. And that's kind of fun. I don't know. I just wondered what you guys thought about that. I, I think they're hugely overpriced, but, you know, I'm an Alante guy. It's a bloated Enzo. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's bigger. It's wider. I mean, it's just, it's a bloated Enzo. The new one seems better. It has a better spec, I think, but I haven't paid too close of attention to it. I believe the MC12 put down a better lap time around the top gear test track than the Enzo did. Yes, it did. Yeah. Well, they were able to obviously take the Enzo. They were able to, 
I would say tweak it, make the adjustments to it that, you know, to make it a better handling card. And that was one that they actually took basically to go racing, whereas the Enzo wasn't. So that's what they wanted to do is make that thing better. So because they wanted to take that thing racing and it was actually extremely successful. I think it was like three straight championships or something. I mean, it was really successful in their series they raced in. How much of that is just tires? This is an honest question. If you put Michelin Sport Cup to our tires on that original Ferrari in the mid-90s or whatever the hell was, what what would be its lap time then? No, that's a good point. Especially this day and age, I mean, because you got so many different compounds, everything you can put on a car. That would be really interesting to see, just to be able to put it down to tires. I would say a good percentage of it could come down to tires, what you have on it. Remember a couple of years back when Chris Harris went to Portimao and took the McLaren, the Ferrari, and the Porsche hypercars and like tested them. And then they had to mandate, it's like no one could bring their own rubber. They had to like use. Yeah. Those guys were not happy about it, but. Well, you got a lot of cars today that they're built around the tires. Basically start with those to go to what that car is going to be specced with and go from there to what that thing can do. You, know, you get cup twos on there. I mean, those things aren't going to last, what, maybe 2,500 miles, <laughs> 1,500 miles? I've got 9,000 on a pair of cup twos right now. Oh, you do? I, I do. <laughs> he didn't tell you that they were corded, but, you know, whatever. No, I, I just had <laughs> service. They told me they were doing great. I asked them if I needed a new set. <laughs> and hoping they would say no. Kind of going back to these Italian collector cars, I don't know that there is one right answer. I really do think it goes back to what William was saying early on. It's what you want to do with Don's racing to say it because the answer is Cadillac. No, it's not a Cadillac this time, Eric. You challenged me and you said Don has run out of America. No, I'd like to contend. I'd like to offer up for your consideration. All right. Let me guess, the Oldsmobile 4 or the Chevrolet Testudo or any of these concept cars that never made it to reality. There is the Oldsmobile Trofeo, which has an Italian name, but that's an American car. I'm not going to bring that up. No, you said penned, okay? So I want to bring up the Ford Granada Ghia. Oh, God. The Mustang 2 Ghia. These are all classy cars that you can run around in for 5,000 bucks. Mint condition. These are wonderful cars. If my Italian was worse, I would say that Ghia was synonymous with trash, but, you know, hey, whatever. (laughs) There's certain design houses that I favor over others. Let's just put it that way. And there are a ton of Italian designers out there. And I think that's also the beauty in some of this, right? We've talked about on other episodes where, you know, there's collaborations between Porsche and Mercedes and BMW and Toyota and all sorts of stuff. But in the old days, it's kind of like when you realize that the Bee Gees wrote half of the music for everybody in the seventies and they never really took credit for it. There's a lot of Italian designers that did the same thing for auto manufacturers all over the world, whether it was Volkswagen or Subaru or Fiat, so on down the lines. And it's kind of neat when you dig into that side of it. So I think we've been exposed to Italian cars, at least Italian design cars for a lot longer than we realize. But it goes back to what William was saying earlier. It kind of depends on what you want to do with this thing. It Mm -hmm. seems like money is no object when it comes to an Italian car. I mean, pick your poison. Gray market cars, there's a million of them. It really depends on what you're interested in. I mean, me personally, you know, we were talking about the Alpha SZ. I wouldn't import one as much as I want to drive one. I mean, please somebody hand me the keys. I want to drive my hero. But if I had to choose, I'd buy a later Alfa Romeo Brera 
because it's the evolution of the SZ. It's a little bit more easy on the eyes. It has all the right stuff and none of the weird quirks of the 90s, you know, that kind of thing. There's some understated cars like the Lancia Tema as an example, right? It's a watered down Alfa Romeo sedan that can be hot rotted out. It has the same motor as the Alfa, the 164, stuff like that. There's so many neat cars, but I think people need to take the time to look into them and see what excites them and what they can get into. And I think services like what Chris provides, where if you're interested in the older cars, he's breathing a second, if not a third life into a lot of these vehicles by making the parts more accessible in a global way for people that were like, I could never afford to work on that as easy as a Fiat 850 or a 124. You know, I don't know where to get the parts for that. These places exist. You're looking for an exotic, you call William up and say, Hey man, I want a 288 GTO. You know, he's got all the answers. It's a lot more challenging because we put up these artificial roadblocks, unlike we do for a BMW or a Porsche or a Mercedes, where they have reached an established supercar status long time ago. The 911 is no longer the everyman Porsche. I mean, the 944 was, but it's supercar status now. The Corvette has transcended, right? If you look at its price tag, $150,000 for a Corvette, you know, things like that. So I want to wrap this up in some way, but I think it's it's hard because we seem to wax poetic about all these cars, but we haven't come to any sort of conclusion. I think you hit it right there. We wax poetic. You know, if there's one thing that I think we can all agree on, and I think we've all been around the block a few times with a few different cars, a few different nations who build cars, nothing drives like an Italian car. Nothing. Absolutely. They have a feel, they have an intuitiveness, they have a certain earthiness, if you will, to them. And I don't care if you're talking about my little Fiat or that MC12, there's going to be that certain something that lets you know you're driving an Italian car. And it's wonderful. I mean, to me, they drive better than any other car on the planet. I mean, there's a reason I've had my car for 28 years, you know, and it's the lowly little Fiat. I can only imagine what some of the other cars are like. You know, Eric, you correct me if I'm wrong, but the Italians are also very emotional. Mm -hmm. They're very passionate about what they do. And when they build a car, you know, we were making jokes about them early. This is what I'm going to do today. And uh, that's it. I build three. I'm done. Well, they're on to the next thing because they're done up here. They're done. They've done it. They built it. Let's go on to the next thing. And good, bad, or indifferent as car people You've got to love them for that because that's just how they do it. The French are very much the same way, but we're not talking about them. We're talking about the Italian. And the Germans just keep refining bad ideas forever, you know, like the 911. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I'm not going to go there, but, uh, you know, okay. Germans make bad ideas good eventually. eventually. Is that what Farfik Nugent translates to? Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, I, I think that's what it boils down to. And to William's point, what's your goal? Okay, we can bring up the Diablos and the MC12s and the GTOs and all this other stuff till kingdom come. I think at the end of the day, if we're talking to somebody who's going to be buying their first collector Italian car, yeah, it depends on the bankroll. And yes, William, it depends on their goal. But I think what we need to think about is what's going to make them come back for more? What's the car that we can put them in that they're going to say, wow, this is the coolest thing in the world. I wonder what it'd be like, you know, having the Fiat, everyone always said, well, why don't you get an Alfa Romeo? That seems to be the next step up. I don't know. I just never did. It's not that I don't like them. I just sort of got married to the Fiat and that's where I've been. I think you hit the nail on the head and we can do another gladiator vote here in a minute. But I think the answer to all of this actually lies in the halls of Alfa Romeo. 
Because like BMW, as we said earlier as a joke, it's the Italian BMW. There's something for everybody there between station wagons, compacts, hatchbacks, Mm -hmm. full sedans, luxury. They've got it all. You have to decide which one you want. And they all exude that Italian passion and that flair for design. They're not ugly cars. They're sporty cars, just like BMWs, right? They've gone through their phases. They had their bangle period too. The answer always sort of goes back to Alfa Romeo at the end of the day. And I guess we lost Chris. Mark, what did you do? Mark, bring Chris back. I was texting him. I think I sufficiently offended him that he just left. (laughs) But I think that's where people need to divert their attention is look at Alfa Romeo. Look at what they're putting out. They just released five photos of the new Duetto. There's a lot of progress still being made under that brand. It's been around a long time. It's over 100 years old. It's one of the older car manufacturers. So don't take that for granted. There's a lot of racing pedigree there. There's a lot of refinement, some of the best engines, some of the best sounding engines on the planet come out of that manufacturer. Well, and you know, you brought up age. Italian car manufacturing, Fiat is 1899. Alfa Romeo is right there with them. Maserati is not far off. Ferrari, what is that? 49, I think they were established. 48. Or the new kid on the block. Yeah. And you know, you want to talk new kid, God, Lamborghini 63, you know, they're brand new compared to everything else. But yeah, Italian car manufacturing has been there for a long time. There's a reason when you drive an Italian car, it feels like an Italian car. You know, you made the joke about the biturbo for the five minutes that it runs. It's fantastic. That fantastic does transcend. You know, it really, really does. And I, I think Alpha is a great place for any anybody looking for that first Italian car. I think Alpha would be a great place because there is such a variety. And not to be the biased guy, but I think you're foolish to discount Fiat. Because again, you've got a whole bunch of different personalities, a whole bunch of different cars, a whole bunch of different price ranges, et cetera. You know, William, you brought it up. You've got the Fiat Dino as well. And I brought it up. We have the Fiat 130. So we have some different ones. But Eric is right. The sound, the performance the refinement that you're going to find in Alfa Romeo, you know, you're going out of the Volkswagen realm into the BMW realm and that's where you are. So yeah, I, I think we could definitely agree. Anybody looking for that first time collector car Italian. Yeah. I, I think if you tell them, you know, look to the Alfa Romeo school, I think you'd be good because you've got that age, you've got the engineering. Do you want a GT car? Do you want a family car, a, a touring car, or do you want an all out sports car? They've got something for you. Yeah, and then that product support's out there too. You got so many uh, out there that, you know, aftermarket suppliers and manufacturer parts and to do whatever you want to them is out there also. So it's not like you're going to be left high and dry. So that's what's fantastic too about it. I agree. Alpha is a great route to go. And Alpha, they're still racing. Look at the fan base in Formula uh, One. I mean, they're still alive and well. People who are in Ferraris don't realize that Enzo Ferrari started working as the yeah. race director for Alfa Romeo, right? You know, it's like basically Vittorio Yano went and got Lancia and started that V6 and started that whole program, which then turned in to the Ferrari Formula One team in 1956, the V50, that then became the V6 bane of the Ferrari. It's like not all paths lead to Alfa Romeo, but a lot of the Italian heritage and and I think the the charisma and also that drivability that Don you were really getting at it's like that ethos is in there it's really comes out of that house and in fact Enzo Ferrari was more of the mind of we'll build a more powerful engine and that'll make us win races and you know Alpha was more we're going to build a car that people can drive that our drivers can take around a track and is balanced and has that right 
ergonomics to make them be successful. And that has been their gift to the whole Italian car industry in that era. Building on that, Chris, Alpha too, if you buy one of their sedans, be it the, I don't know, the Giulia, be it the Milano, be it the, the 164, the 164 is always one of my favorite cars. You're going to have a wonderful driving experience and you can still take the family out to dinner or yeah. you can still, you know, enjoy your cars and coffee. You can go all over the map with that car. You're not stuck in a run-of-the-mill cookie-cutter kind of car. You've got something very special, and they do move, and they do handle, and they do have that passion, and, and that it's just an irreplaceable bit of Italy. I can honestly say I imprinted on Alpha at an early age. You know, I was driving age, I guess you could say, but I drove my grandfather's Alpha 33 up in the mountains of Italy, and it's one of those unforgettable drives. It wasn't the most fantastic Alpha Romeo on the planet, but it was unlike anything else I had ever driven, and at that point, I had driven a ton of cars because I started running cars at an early age. To me, I was like, this is really cool. It was a driver's car, even as a basic sedan, but you could rip through the mountains. And then again, a high strung twin cam four cylinder. It was a joy to drive. I walked away from it and it just, I still remember it to this day. And that was nearly shoot 20 years ago, right? Or more now mm -hmm. that I haven't driven that car. And it's just like, it still just leaves that impression on you. I imagine you, even when you're 16 with a full thick beard. Oh, dude, this came, this came in at like eighth grade, man. Come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I will just say I live out in Oregon and Sports Car Market Magazine had a, a SCM 1000. We had an amazing array of cars from John Shirley's like $30 million Cal Spider Competizione. You know, it's like one of the world's most important cars down to little Alfa Romeo Spiders and stuff. And I was driving a 1965 Julia Spider Veloce just a charming, beautiful car with 1.6 liter engine and a perfectly tuned gearbox that just engaged and the steering was tight. It's one of the greatest driving experiences you'll ever have, just full stop. Get your Alfa Romeos, listeners. So there's something we haven't talked about, which is if you are a first-time buyer, are you looking at financing and, and how does that work? There's this weird gap in financing that I experienced when I was in my 20s and trying to buy cars that maybe weren't the best, you know, financial decision that I was making at the time, but I did it anyway. You know, you can go through a major bank kind of up to like seven years old. And then after that, they don't want to finance it. And classic car financing kind of starts at like the 25 year range. And one, financing can make these things a lot more affordable. It's one thing to say you've saved $30,000 in cash and you're willing to put all of that into a car. And it's another thing entirely to say that, yeah, you know, I'll make my $600 a month car payment on, you know, this car versus that car. Getting back to what we were talking about with alphas, you know, as we talk about kind of, you know, the more obtainable under 50K range, you, you get the quadrifolio, the 4C that falls into your more traditional financing realm. I personally think the 90s have the most upside. William said it earlier in regards to, you know, the age groups of the people that are buying this stuff, the people that are coming into the money, they're coming into the strongest buying position of their career. The cars they were looking at that they wanted were 90s cars, right? So you've got 90s GTVs, very cool V6s, gorgeous headers and great sound, things that you can look at from that perspective that are actually falling into classic car financing range. I bought an 85 911 in 2009 or whatever using classic car financing. And it was the 
youngest car they were willing to finance. I had to actually like talk to them, be like, explain to them, no, this was the date it was built. And therefore it meets your 25 year age requirement and you can finance me for it. And after that, they were totally cool. And I got a loan and five years later, I'd paid it off. That enabled me to get into that 85, 911 that I wouldn't have been able to get into. Otherwise, I didn't have 25 grand in cash that I was going to spend on that without it. So William, do you want to chime in on that from the financing perspective? Because I mean, you deal with this stuff all the time. Not really. He's all cash transactions. Oh, yeah. my bad. Millions <laughs> in cash. They just show up with a dump truck full of cash at the other guy's house and leave it in their driveway. Nice. I mean, no, it's a good point. Back to you know, I mean, obviously, to get into it, though, you're going to have to find that route. I mean, especially with the rates you get. I mean, now, lately, this day and age, it kind of got up because what's going on. But money's still relatively cheap. And, you know, if you can finance it out and sit on your money a little bit to keep it for it, I would recommend going that route. But there are so many classic car financing out there. Pick up Sports Car Marketplace. You pick up any of the magazines out there. You're going to find the advertisements for these companies. Just you call around. Shop around like you would anything. If you're getting a mortgage or whatnot, find who's going to best rate. Some people are going to be a little more flexible on how old the car is, what they're going to be able to do. So it's get the best terms you can. And some of it's going to support you too, but not financing it, but insuring it also is going to be the other big thing you want to kind of look at. Will they give you the value? of What's their total value on the insurance is a big one. Yeah. Exactly. If it gets totaled, what's it worth? Then the other part of exotic car financing that almost doesn't get talked about nearly enough is the idea that when you make a claim, they also owe you for the depreciated value of the car as a result of you making the claim. I don't know how I'd never really heard about this until I got into the community, but it's a huge thing that isn't talked about enough and they will certainly not tell you about it. And your friends who own Honda Accords are never going to tell you about it because obviously they don't experience it. Depending on your car, it could be a large percentage that that car is going to appreciate after the fact, especially if it was a car that would never been an accident, nothing. All of a sudden, you know, it's got this, depending on the extent, but a lot of people won't touch a car that's been in an accident. Gauging what your depreciation was just because it was in an accident too plays a key role because it's if you get an accident with your insurance, you want to be sure that you're going to get that value also back. Because it could be a nice amount of money. Well, gentlemen, I think it's time to do a quick lightning round as we close this thing out. I'm going to give you two options. Your number one Alfa Romeo pick for this newbie collector or soon to be adding an Alfa Romeo to their collection. And then the second car is that pinnacle, just over the top. You had to buy one Italian car and money was no object. What would that be? Chris Bright. You know, there's so many great entry points with Alpha. Most of them are still in a pretty reasonable range. If I were to recommend one, I would probably go with like a 1968 to 72 GTV, 1750 engine, right around the 30K range. Can go up if there's one that's really super sorted and fresh. Great car. You'll have fun. It looks gorgeous. And it's just a great entry point. And I think Alpha is a really good and supportive mark. You know, I'm the president of the Alpha Club for Oregon, where I live. If you're interested in getting one, call the club first because they're turning over and people will look out for you. And they'll also recommend the right mechanics and things like that. In terms of like the the car, oh, there's, there's a few... You get three max if you're going to go there. Oh, three? I thought you were just going to one. All right. I'll go pre-war. I'll go with an- Pre-war? The Civil War? Oh, man. Napoleon? We're going pre-Napoleon. 
No, pre-war, I'll go Alfa Romeo P3. 50s, I'll go with a Maserati 300S and more modern. I don't know if I'll even go modern. I love the 288, but if I could get an Alfa Romeo 33 Stradale, I think that could be the most beautiful car. It's hard to bust his balls when he makes such nice choices. I know, right? So, Mark, you're on the other end of the, you're the yin to his yang. So what yeah, you got? sure. No, totally. So first time collector, I go back to the recommendation I just made previously in, in 90s GTV. I think that's a super cool car. You're especially in the US, you know, you're not going to run into many of those in a cars and coffee type range. And it still hasn't had its values jacked up. If I could pick something and I would go so far as to say, dare I say something that isn't totally ridiculous, I would buy an F430 Scud and do a manual swap. That's a solid choice. I buy the Scud. It's 150, 175K. I'd spend the 25 grand on the manual swap and you'd have one nasty ass 500 horsepower mid-engine V8, naturally aspirated, just angry, angry car that would be fun as hell to drive. Sweet. All right. Mr. Weberg, what is in your Magnetti Morelli three-car garage, and what's your Alfa Romeo recommendation? That sounds a little bit weird. You know, this is a car that I ran into when we were photographing garages. It's a little weird to work with me here. The Alfa Romeo Giulia GTC. It's essentially the coupe. They cut off the roof, and now you've got this little four-place. Oh, Chris, you know, go get something to drink, okay? Yeah. Go find your pipe, Chris. Where's your pipe? I'm in the, I'm in the sunlight <laughs> out here on the West Coast. I haven't even eaten my dinner yet. Chris, I'm going to send my Elante for you. I'm going to take you for a steak dinner. We'll take you to okay? a nice dinner. It's going to be but great. The only problem is that Don's Elante is Mary Kay Pink. So I just... You know. <laughs> Aren't they all? I thought that was just like... They were the all pink. Color. They it's made another Mary color? Kay Pink. It's Pearl Petal Rose. Okay? Oh, jeez. Champagne gold metallic. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> So anyway, that I think that's the alpha that I would recommend to somebody. And I think I would do that because it is limited. It has a very workable uh, drivetrain. Parts are available. It's going to have that driving experience. Again, you're not going to see too many of them at Cars and Coffee, but it is going to be a conversation starter as to, is that a factory thing? Is that, you know, how they get the top off? I think that's going to be interesting. Yeah, there's so many pie in the skies Italians to go with. The one that's been recently catching my attention a lot is the Lamborghini Aventador. That is a solid choice. I like that. Great car. William, you're up. I'll have to piggyback on Chris. I agree with that on the Alpha. I think that's perfect for you know, someone who's going to jump in. I think it's perfect. Not only we just with what the car is, the enjoyment you got of it, but the clubs, you know, and just the camaraderie you're going to have with, with have that car. I think that's the perfect car to get. You know, you're going to start out with. If I'm going to go my three car garage. It's going to be the F40, 288, and the 275 four cam. Ooh, man, I hope you got good insurance. <laughs> so you, did, you, did you win the Mega Millions? <laughs> <laughs> You better win the Mega Millions. <laughs> I might actually buy that Scud one day. <laughs> uh, no, your choice on that Scud. That, I mean, that's that's the now. You know, and ten years ago, people would frown on that immensely, but now it's so getting so common. No one cares. Everyone's going for it. That's a fantastic thing to do. I mean, those those Scuds are just fabulous cars. It'd be nice if they would have made them six feet from the factory, but you know, those are. I think you're gonna see a lot more of those. A lot of that happening a lot more. Brad, you've been quiet tonight, buddy. You doing okay? Because I don't know much about Italian cars, you know, <laughs> except for, you know, what I've seen from the 90s and on. I've actually been shopping while you all have been talking for a newer 2018 Giulia Quadrifoglio. 
So that's where I'm going with the Alpha, because like you all were saying, it's in the 50 range. It's not terrible, and it's a future classic. Pie in the Sky, I'm doing a 575M. I'm doing an F50. I don't know. I'm going to do a Diablo VT. Oh, the convertible. All right, so I'm going to give you Jerry's final thought here. You know, mine are always uber complicated and involved. For Alfa Romeos, to Don's point, I'm always on the sporty side. I want a car I can jump in and kind of thrash and hoon around in and things like that. I fell in love with the GTB6 a long time ago, but I wouldn't recommend that, right? It's a problem child. It has its issues. I can get better performance out of an E30 BMW if I'm, if I'm going to go down that route, right? So I'm going to park that one. I fell in love with the Alfa Romeo SZ. That's the car for me. That's Alfa Romeo's Corrado, but... It's also in that category of, okay, even though I got it here, now what do I do with it? If I'm going to import an alpha from overseas, I said it earlier, the Brera is the way to go. It's the modern version of both of those cars. It's got everything you want, modern electronics, all the suspension dialed in, that kind of thing. A close cousin to that would be the 147 GTA hatchback. So they're very kind of similar in that respect. Both those kind of shooting brake designs. I like that style of car. So that would be my choice. If you're into hot hatches, you know, the Brera or the 147 is really going to be up your alley if you're tired of the same old, you know, Subaru and Preza and, and Golf GTI and that kind of stuff. In my three-car garage, it's really an interesting bunch of cars in there. I mean, obviously, the F40 is always going to be at the top of my list. I don't know that I would buy one because if I'm spending ungodly amounts of money, I want a 155 B6 Ti, you know, 12,000 RPM touring car from the DTM era. I would love to have a Ferrari 458 GT3, just like our friend Andy Pilgrim runs in SRO. You know, cars like that really excite me. I think they're great. At the end of it, there's just something that we forgot on this list. And there's a lot of cars we mentioned. Many of them were actually penned by Jujaro. And, I, you know, you guys know I'm a big fan of his from the Bora to the Maroc to the Dino Coupe to, you know, the Panda and, and a bunch of other vehicles that we talked about were all penned by the same guy. And he often gets, again, forgotten. It's kind of lost in the weeds. There's another car that he penned and Don will appreciate this because it has some funky doors and it's not a DeLorean. The Alante. Not yet the Alante. It is the De Tomaso Mangusta. Ah, uh, good car. Yeah, I absolutely adore those cars. I saw one again in person at the Peterson. It's just so funky, so cool. You could take that to any car show from Cars and Coffee to Amelia to Pebble and back and everybody's going to go, wow, what the heck is that? Because it's just so unique and it's just got the Jujaro flair all over it. So that would be my like top of the list, just funky, just got to have it sort of car. So we'll leave on a high note. <laughs> I'm glad for once we came to a consensus on a What Should I Buy episode. And only here is the Mangusta high note. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking Italian cards, all right? Okay. No, but I, I'm really happy that for once we've come to a consensus. We've come to an agreement on something, and Alfa Romeo seems to be the way to go. So listeners, if you're thinking about an Italian, you're thinking about getting into this world, Alfa Romeo is the place you got to go. So if you started off this episode always dreaming about buying an Italian car, you've been too afraid to cross that line, maybe because of bad word of mouth, horror stories, misconceptions, or parts availability, we hope that the advice that you were given tonight proved that wrong, muted some of those fears, and you begin to turn your attention and investment dollars towards an Italian collector car. 
We want to thank William Ross from the Ferrari and Porsche Marketplace, also sales director for Gerberbach Porsche. You can reach out to him directly at William at FerrariMarketplace.com. Also, we'd like to thank Chris Bright for coming on the show from Collector Part Exchange. You can find all the really cool Italian goodies on www.collectorpartexchange.com or at Collector Part Exchange on social media. If you want to continue this conversation, be sure to jump over to Garage Riot, where Donovan Laura has created the social media platform for car enthusiasts, www.garageriot.com, also available as a mobile app for your iOS or Android device. Right. And he owns one of those Gallardos that uh, Mark doesn't like. <laughs> Even though he wasn't able to join, we want to thank John Cafisi from Project Motoring for sending in some recommendations that we mentioned tonight. You can check out PMX at projectmotoring.com, your source for custom and bespoke safety gear at Project Motoring on social. Don Weyberg from Garage Style Magazine and their new and improved website at www.garagestylemagazine.com and at Garage Style Magazine on social. That's right. And finally, our petrol head extraordinaire, Mark Shank, who has been on several great Break Fix episodes and more to come in the future for sure. So tune into the show to get caught up with Mark. So gentlemen, I cannot thank you all enough for coming on yet another abusive episode of what should i buy no i'm just kidding <laughs> another episode of what should i buy here on break fix so it's always a pleasure to get together and who knows what we'll talk about next maybe french cars race cars who knows alante's forever yeah alante's forever we could do a whole episode on alante's can we just have an, a show on alante's absolutely a whole episode they have three different motors okay wait 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 i have an idea yeah, we do an episode on Elantes, and I will send you some edibles out from Oregon. We'll all take them <laughs> at the same time. Or maybe that's better for French cars. I don't know. That could be... Nice. If under finders keepers rules, I own a crack pipe now. <laughs> Anybody, any of you fools can, can, can do that, huh? Only in an alpha. <laughs> Catch you later. Thanks, guys. We'll be in touch. Hey, guys. Ciao, amici. If you like what you've heard and want to learn more about GTM, be sure to check us out on www.gtmotorsports.org. You can also find us on Instagram at Grand Touring Motorsports. Also, if you want to get involved or have suggestions for future shows, you can call or text us at 202-630-1770 or send us an email at crewchief at gtmotorsports.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hey, everybody. Crew Chief Eric here. We really hope you enjoyed this episode of Break Fix, and we wanted to remind you that GTM remains a no annual fees organization, and our goal is to continue to bring you quality episodes like this one at no charge. As a loyal listener, please consider subscribing to our Patreon for bonus and behind-the-scenes content, extra goodies, and GTM swag. For as little as $2.50 a month, you can keep our developers, writers, editors, casters, and other volunteers fed on their strict diet of Fig Newtons, gummy bears, and Monster. Consider signing up for Patreon today at www.patreon.com forward slash GT Motorsports. And remember, without fans, supporters, and members like you, none of this would be possible.